Audio conversation with Micah Hanks, recorded May 10th, 2011. Micah is an author and paranormal investigator, and he published a book just a little bit over a year ago titled Magic, Mysticism, and the Molecule, where he looks at um, mystical realms and esoteric realms and how those realms interact with the paranormal phenomena. He is also... um, very much a boots-on-the-ground investigator, and I will say he is young. He is 28 years old, and that is uh, pretty unusual in this uh, funny little sandbox of people who study the paranormal. Gotta say, took me by surprise when he told me his age. And he's also got the gift of gab, I have to say. Um, This guy knows how to talk. So uh, what happened, what ended up happening is I had a list of questions. I got to some of them. The conversation uh, had a life of its own. Uh, It went all over the place, which I like. But uh, it may seem a little disjointed and a little confusing for you, the listener. Uh, It is less a formal interview and very much a conversation. I do have to give Micah a a, a lot of credit. This guy really knows his stuff. He's done a lot of research, done a lot of reading, uh, takes it seriously, and he's doing it. So anyway, I I give the guy credit. I had a delightful time. Uh, The interview is long, so this intro will be short. And, and early on in the, uh, in the discussion, I bring up a story about a, a woman I know in town here who tells a story about when she was a little girl who sees a wizard in the backyard. It's a very interesting story, and we keep on referring back to that. As simple as it sounds, that curious paranormal story kind of makes a, a backbone, a, a sort of framework for all the rest of the paranormal phenomena that we discuss. The interview is just a little bit over two hours long. I had a great time. Please enjoy. Howdy, howdy. Micah Hanks, you're, you're here. Indeed, yes, here in the flesh. Well, at least uh, here in Skype, right? <laughs> here in Skype. And you have some groovy uh, new um, fancy pants microphone? Uh, well, no, this is, uh, this is one that I've been using for a while. Um, it certainly sounds okay, and I hope it's not too overbearing. Is there too much treble or anything right now? Does no, it sound all right? You sound beautiful. You sound beautiful. Dear, how's, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm, uh, let's see here. Let me think of some colloquialisms here. I'm fit as a fiddle. Oh, yeah, so uh, you're from the South, so you get to use those kind of things. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Living down here in Asheville, North Carolina. So, yeah, <laughs> I feel great. Fantastic. Probably a little better than usual and ready to discuss uh, Owls and Fortiana. Good. Hey, um, have you listened to any of my podcasts or anything? You know, I did check out a couple, actually, at your site, yeah, just the other day. And, uh, of course, you know, I like the, 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 the fact that it's actually not so much a show as it is an interview. I mean, it's really a conversation. I, I really love that because, you know, so many people put so much silliness out there on the web these days. So I really, really, really dig it. And, uh, and yeah, you're, you're pretty unconventional with some of the things that you bring up. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, anyway, so, yeah, it's been very interesting. And, and my focus has been basically the abduction phenomena. Just I think that, that to me is the, the crux of all weirdness that is associated yeah. with, with, you know, the overall phenomena or the overall set of phenomena or the convergence of multiple phenomena. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that's kind of where my focus has been. Okay. Um, yeah, and I try to – it's interesting. There's a, there's some folks out there that, that do a lot of podcasts. Uh, uh, Nick Redfern and stuff like that is, is a, a total pro at this kind of stuff. So, but And I've tried to dig a little deeper and to talk to folks that I've come in contact with as I have gone about, mostly since starting the, the, the blog. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, oh, absolutely. Yeah, and there's so many people to talk to. You know, I mean, when I'm, when I'm doing this kind of stuff, I'll try and get people who – 
nobody's ever heard of. There's a guy who lives actually right here in Asheville where I do named Vance Pollock, and I've known him for years. But, uh, you know, you talk about an esoteric historian, you know, and I'll, <laughs> I just love chatting it up with guys like that. And there are some other ones, too, out there. You know, you kind of got to dig for them. They're, they're the favorites, of course. I mean, Nick Redfern is everybody's favorite for a reason. That guy just is incredible, and I've, I've, I've had the pleasure of hanging out with Nick and actually getting to know him and everything. And he and I correspond pretty frequently, as I'm sure you and he do also. But, uh, you know, there's a reason why some of them are, are, are favorites, but I like to try and also give a little time to, you know, some of the, the less conventional uh, guests and things like that. So, But especially when it comes to less conventional subject matter, I'm, I'm interested in digging into this with you today. Do you want to talk primarily? I mean, you sent those talking points last night, but uh, do you, you know, want to talk? I have a list ahead. of questions that, that are kind of focused on those talking points. Hey, you know, let's just, just when, as soon as Skype picked up, I started recording. So uh, we're rolling. Mm-hmm. What, so okay. we can just go right into this, and I have the, I'll include some of that, which we just did. And, well, let's and do I, it. Dur- and I, I will edit the the, uh, the overall content before it goes online, um, sure. which I I, uh, I just feel like I should give a giant instruction manual to other people who do podcasts. <laughs> Yeah, because it's very easy to edit these things. I have no agenda. I have no time frame. Usually, conversations have a, uh, you know, they kind of have a life of their own, and they kind mm-hmm. of you kind of sense when things are winding down, and and uh, and I'll just take advantage of that, and who knows how long that'll be. And I don't have a whole lot on my on my schedule, so let's just play it by ear. One thing though, first, hang on, let's hear. Oh, and I've been doing that too. <laughs> and here, let me, I'll, I'll yeah. do competing. To, uh, <laughs> There we go. There we go. So it, are, are you doing coffee this morning? Good God, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm a coffee. I'm an absolute coffee fiend. However, this morning I, I decided to be weird, and I'm doing Earl Grey tea. So. Oh, my gosh. So you're not going to have anything to talk about. You're going to, like, that's like. <laughs> well, if, if I'm dragging too much, let me know, and I'll go make some coffee. <laughs> okay, yeah. So, yeah, so at any point, go ahead and plug the book, and I will, in a, in, in a effort for a full disclosure here, I have not read your book. That's fine. But actually, remind me. I'll send you a copy. Oh, good, good. In fact, it's it's and, and I haven't read it. Just just basically the, um, you know, the, this interview sort of came kind of quick, and and um, so I just figured, like you said, yes, and I said, oh, great, let's roll with it. Yeah. Hey, just thanks so much for saying yes to the interview. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the focus on my entire thing, I guess, my entire the the uh, the blog, the the audio podcasting has been. More or less, I try to keep it focused on on the personal experience. I don't like to sort of like spin off into theoretical gobbledygook, uh, you know. And I like to try to keep it tailored into the personal experience, whether it's your personal experiences or stuff you've talked about. But have you had any like uh, like direct experience of like paranormal stuff? Well, you know, I come into this with with kind of this uh, this I wouldn't say novice uh, <clears throat> approach or attitude. I think it's more of kind of a you know, I'm, I'm the the natural skeptic. I'm the person who's never had these kinds of things happen to them. Um, I've you know met a few psychics who have over the years, you know, kind of uh, uh, rocked my world. You know, for a few instances over you know for a, for a few moments have, uh, over dinner or something like that. Um, and they'll always tell me, well, the reason you don't have these kinds of things happen to you is because you're closed off to it. And the more that I've done interviews and talked with people, for instance, you know, I was talking to Bill and Nancy Burns on their program Future Theater just the other night. And uh, I, they asked if I'd ever, you know, witnessed anything uh, ufological in nature, or if I'd had anything occur that was something, you know, along the lines of a maybe, 
you know, a uh, you know, an, an alien kind of dream or a dream where I was visited by an entity or anything. And it's so funny because, I, again, I'll always say, well, I've never had anything happen. But, you know, it's almost like if you dig back into your memories, especially if you have a mindset like I tend to have going into this. And I'm not one of these, you know, skeptic debunkers just going to cut everybody down and, and, and say that everything is is not real. When I say skeptic, what I mean uh, before I continue any further, because that's the one that gets a lot of people. When I say skeptic, I specifically mean that I'm a person who, who when I go into an instance, I see a – because, you know, again, not just being a researcher. I mean, I've spent years, you know, actually, uh, you know, investigating strange phenomena. And, you know, I do believe that you do need to uh, go out into the field, so to speak. You know, you also need to uh, create experiments. I, I tell people I always keep, you know, little copies of, um, you know, uh, uh, college textbooks and things on, on the uh, the – uh, scientific method and mathematics and natural sciences, things like that. And I've really gotten into philosophy a lot of all, also over the last year in terms of really kind of breaking away from uh, what conventional science says that we are supposed to understand based on, you know, what the five senses tell us. You know, and if we really think about it from a human perspective, all things that are called or deemed, you know, conventional science or scientific law are interdependent primarily on what the five senses of the human body can perceive. So there, there are obvious limitations, and people are so blind to that. But then again, how can we get outside that? We're humans. You know, there, there is no way. We can, we can measure things, you know, with electrical devices or, or other instruments that are designed to, you know, reach beyond what our senses can determine. On, on their own, but nonetheless, you know, the information that we receive from that kind of instrumentation is still filtered through the human experience. So that said, you know, I try and implement scientific processes and things like that that for humans have worked traditionally. Um, and when it comes to that, I don't disclude any longer, uh, you know, the, uh, the uh, incorporation of sometimes metaphysical processes and things, meditation, or, uh, you know, I, I'm a big fan, and I talk about this in my book, Magic, Mysticism, and the Molecule, uh, scrying and uh, a process that's called the psychomantium. And both of these are, are essentially… What is scrying? Scrying uh, and, and the psychomantium both fall under what would be uh, called mirror gazing. It's basically looking into uh, the, uh, the optical depth uh, or the, op- death, the optical depth of a, uh, of a reflective surface, often, you know, in a very dimly lit dark room, uh, you know, maybe a, a dark room that's lit only by candlelight or some sort of indirect soft light. And scrying, uh, I'll, I'll give you a historic example of this. You know, John Dee and Edward Kelly, uh, back in the Middle Ages, had worked in this capacity to try and speak to what John Dee believed were angelic beings, these Enochian angels. And his medium, uh, Edward Kelly, who was also known kind of as a charlatan, but there have been people throughout history, among them Aleister Crowley, who have said that John Dee was the, he was the old codger and that Kelly was actually the, the adept and that he was the one with the talent. <laughs> I think that's kind of disputable in, in my own estimation. But uh, they would use, uh, among uh, other things, an obsidian black mirror. Uh, and, and this was made from obsidian that was actually, actually obtained in the Middle Americas. I think Cortez brought this mirror back from the, uh, from his, uh, some of his uh, you know, exploits in the, uh, in the Americas. And he brought this back and it was given to John Dee. Uh, they also used what was called a shoe stone, which in essence is a crystal ball. And they would use these to try and kind of uh, uh, obtain uh, insight into an area beyond so to speak, you know, some, something beyond the ethereal or beyond the senses. Um, D, it's interesting, didn't actually, uh, you know, 
he, he wasn't the individual who was actually able to see these entities. Edward Kelly typically did, on, although on at least one or two occasions. Um, one notable occasion, John D. claimed that this angel that had been contacting him through his partner, Edward Kelly, uh, named Madimi, I believe, uh, it was a, a small, almost kind of infantile female angelic figure. He said that Madimi actually appeared hovering in the air before him on one occasion and literally physically manifested uh, at least once. So, but the point I'm getting at is that you know there are spiritual tools or what we might call spiritual technologies, which although in modern times, especially according to Western practices, may not be scientifically quantifiable, uh, these things have shown over time uh, to people who claim to have uh, experiences that are psychic. Uh, or what we would call supernatural in nature, they have shown, at least according to those individuals, to have you know a good degree of success. And so as opposed to saying that since scientifically these things can't be quantified in a laboratory, repeated three times you know, with test subjects who you know, either do or do not have uh, or claim to have any natural psychic tendencies, I think that as opposed to completely putting those things outside what we can, what we can hope to learn from and understand, we have to incorporate those things as part of the greater human experience and so when I go about research and investigation, I like to try and incorporate all those elements, both scientific, you know, processes, scientific method, and, uh, you know, some, some of what are called the uh, spiritual sciences. Now, that said, getting back to your primary question about have I had an experience myself, when it comes to incorporating these things, if you do go about things scientifically and you're discerning about what you're, what you're observing, it's easy to discount things at the moment that the, that the, that the occurrence actually takes place, <clears throat> and then... Later on, you'll come back and you'll revisit a thought, and maybe this is just kind of the color that your mind tends to put on something. But uh, but I have found that there have been instances where I have literally thought at the time that, well, that's probably nothing. And then later on, come back and questioned uh, experiences. Uh, I have seen occasionally lights in the sky, which at the time I would, you know, kind of just, you know, say, well, that's probably this or that. That's probably ball lightning. That's a plasma. Coming back and thinking about it, thinking about there being multiple witnesses in these occasions. This has occurred a lot at Brown Mountain, North Carolina, and I talk about that a lot. We can get into that a little later. You know, that's one of these locations where I think back to many instances where I've seen illuminations, discounted them at the time, and now if I if I really think back, it's like, gosh, there have been a number of things that I've seen that, you know, are certainly, uh, they may be natural phenomena, but they are not something that is uh, that, that we classify as as common knowledge, you know, scientific or otherwise. Um, and, and then finally, uh, I alluded to this uh, conversation I had with Bill Burns the other night with his wife Nancy on the Future uh, Theater uh, radio program. Bill had asked me, you know, have you ever had any dreams where you've, you know, been encountered, you know, encountered beings or anything like that? And I said, well, none that, that indicate to me that I've had an experience. But I told him about a strange dream that I did have on one occasion where, and it's funny, this had never come up in an interview, interview before because, again, I never thought anything about this. But I, I remember a very vivid dream I had probably in my early teens uh, where there was a kind of like a, a, you know, a small, I don't know what you'd call it, like a skiff or some sort of a small a sailing vessel that might sleep, you know, two, three, four people. And there's a, a hatch in the top of this vessel. And I remember that there was a man sailing alone in the ocean, and he was he was removed from the cabin of this small sailing vessel by what we would only be able to call alien intelligences, you know, diminutive humanoids. They had fleshy-colored skin, but, you know, large bulbous heads. I mean, they were aliens, you know, uh, by what we would call aliens, you know, those standards. And this man was abducted, you know, in a very classical abducted, uh, abduction 
you know, scenario. Uh, he was put on a table and, and experimented on. And I remember he, him being very terrified, you know, when this was happening. And again, you know, I'm familiar with abduction lore. And I, oh, to and this were, day. And were you familiar with that during your teens? You said you had this dream during your teens. Exactly. Yes, I was. In fact, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I've, I've been well aware of, uh, you know, the alien abduction phenomenon and the literature about, uh, pertaining to that probably since about the time I was, you know, at least. Uh, eight or nine years old, and, and and then you know other aspects of Fortiana and um, and the unexplained even earlier than that. You know, by the time I was in kindergarten, I tell people that you know, and I thank them for this. You know, I'm I'm so grateful that I had parents who trying to find they 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 noticed that I enjoyed folk tales and that I liked ghost stories when we'd sit around the campfire at night, and so they thought, well, if we want to get him to read, let's introduce him. And they were careful about what they'd provide. I mean, they weren't just giving me gobbledygook, you know, and stuff like that. They weren't giving me these horrific tales of suspense hp lovecraft or something like that when i was five years old but they did give me books you know and and uh and they were careful in how they presented it now i did have teachers who were who were you know they looked they frowned upon uh the thought of me writing all my reports by the time i was in you know third and fourth grade and this is true i mean i kid you not i I remember very you know clearly writing a report in third grade about ufos and the teacher mrs hall she uh she was very dismayed and she had me stand up in front of the class and she told me you know there's just no evidence that supports this kind of thing it's fine if you want to write about it but you know you know this is fantasy basically and you know you you don't need to buy into all this sort of stuff you know she was very dismissive about it and that was a formulative experience for me so yeah i was very interested in ufos quick question do you still have that report you know it's a good question i don't know i should i should dig around i'm sure i probably still have uh, somewhere, or my parents may even still sure, have somewhere dusty, some dusty box tucked away in the garage or something. Sure. Yeah, I should I should get in touch with my parents and see if I can you know invade their attic or <laughs> or their basement and try and find this because it'd be interesting to see you know, what kinds of things I was writing when I was in third grade. I know I'd been introduced by that time to Jerry Clark and uh, you know who's just I think chief among all the the good Fortians out there and uh, Ivan Sanderson. Uh, Peter Byrne, there was a book I remember vividly from about the age of five or six called uh, Bigfoot, Man, Myth, or Monster. That may, be, may not be the right order for the, the, the characters in the subtitle, but it was something to that extent. Uh, Peter Byrne's book, Ivan Sanderson's uh, Abominable Snowman Legend Come to Life. There was a book by Ray Fowler called UFOs, Interplanetary Visitors. A little-known book by a man named uh, Peter Costello called In Search of Lake Monsters. Uh, it, that, I think it was probably the only book that that writer actually wrote pertaining to strange phenomena. It was one of his first books, and it, you know, he wrote all kinds of things about history and culture you know, for decades after that, but never, never anything like that. Uh, so that's a lesser-known book, but it was a fascinating compendium of reports from all around the world of, of you know, cryptozoological creatures, you know, beasts that lived in water. So those I was introduced to at about five or six. And, yeah, I did have you know, some knowledge of UFOs and things by the time I would have had that dream. But Bill Burns, as he's asking the questions, he's like, wait, 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 you know, what, do, do, you, do you remember if there were instruments or if there were devices? You know, and, and he, I loved it because you know, this is, of course, Bill Burns from UFO Hunters and, um, and also a good friend of mine. Uh, because he's the publisher of UFO Magazine, for whom I write. And uh, and his wife, Nancy, is the editor. And, of course, I correspond the most with Nancy. But uh, Nancy got on to Bill and said, you know, you're, you, you know don't, don't be so, uh, I guess, invasive you know, with the questions. And I said, hey, Nancy, hold on. Bill Burns thinks I've been abducted by aliens. This is getting interesting. Let's see where it goes. <laughs> and where did it go? <laughs> well, you know, um, Bill said that, you know, there are a lot of people who, who say that they've had reports uh you know uh, or or claim that they have had dreams rather or visions of of a person being abducted and that psychologically some researchers think that there is a uh, you know and I've even heard this and come across this myself that there is a a tendency for one to remove themselves from the situation however i have to point out i've never had any experience sailing 
Um, I don't, uh, you know, this individual, I remember clearly seeing a man with brown hair, and I do have brown uh, hair, kind of sandy, dark, dark brown, blonde hair. It used to be, you know, almost white blonde when I was a kid, and it darkened as I got older. Um, It'll lighten more... up again. I'm in the process of it getting light again. So. <laughs> oh, brother. I've got the Reed Richards. It's what Jerry Garcia called a touch of gray. It's yeah. already starting to happen, so <laughs> I'm, right, I'm right behind you. But, uh, but yeah, that... Um, that uh, what does hair color have to do with anything? Uh, maybe oh, there's oh, the, a... the witness that you saw was it you? I see where you're getting it. Was that actually right. you on the table? I don't. Yeah, I don't think so. This man was older. Uh, you know, probably in his 40s in the dream. Uh, he had glasses. I've never worn glasses, and in fact, my eyesight's still pretty good here at the the ripe old age of 28. Good grief! So, you're only 28. It's funny, you know, I don't usually put that out there in interviews very much. I can tell this is going to be more candid today because, <laughs> you know, uh, people get really weirded out when they find out how young I am. They oh, hear me talking. Oh, Tim Banal is, is, kind of, is also very young, and this is, no, just, I'm just saying this is great in the sense that there is this, uh, oh, how to say it, you know, there's an old guard, right, you know, that we're, mm-hmm. that, that, and, and I consider myself, having been to a few UFO conferences, I'm, I'm 48, and I consider myself, you know, absolutely a baby in the realm of yeah. like these UFO conferences. But anyway, yeah, being 48 is like, you know, I feel like I'm the youngest person in the room. Yeah, and you really probably are in most instances, you know. And that's what's so great is because I do know other researchers. There's a very, very, very talented researcher. Uh, again, you know, a fellow who lives here in Asheville, North Carolina. I mean, there are many. Joshua Warren and I are not only, you know, good friends and fellow researchers, but we're also uh, fourth cousins. Oh, really? Um, I briefly met Joshua at, uh, at, a, at the Laughlin Conference a couple of years ago and spoke yeah. with him. And uh, and was rather impressed with his his take on things. And uh, oh yeah, he's very unconventional, just like I am. <laughs> you know, which is so cool. And that's what's so great is I'd mentioned Vance Pollock, a good friend of mine. Uh, Christopher McCollum is is a very very good friend of mine. I mean, you know, these Chris are all young on- folks. Yeah, Chris is only like 24 years old, and, and you know, I'll tell you, you know, his, his wisdom pertaining to this sort of stuff, we were literally sitting there last night, we, we got together and had a beer, we were talking about, uh, actually, correction, I had an IPA, because uh, th- that, that nice natural hoppy character can be conducive to, uh, you know, strengthening the bones, and, you know, in moderation, of course, uh, Chris was drinking pink lemonade. Okay, because he wanted to take a break from the beer. So <laughs> there, there's full disclosure. But anyway, we were sitting there talking, and we were trying to you know, throw out not the baby with the bathwater, but a lot of the weeds that have grown up around psychic research. Uh, because Christopher, uh, who gives uh, tours, haunted, you know, not so much really haunted tours as they are scandalous history tours and things in the Asheville area. Uh, Chris, um, he was invited recently to in, in, you know, uh, participate in and actually put together and in, 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 in kind of lead a investigation of a building in, in downtown Asheville that is allegedly haunted. And he got together with me and immediately said, you know, <clears throat> there are a lot of misconceptions, I think. Uh, you know, actually, I'd told him this in a previous conversation, and he reminded me, he said, you remember these things that we talked about, these misconceptions you thought that you had with regard to psychic research, quote-unquote ghost hunting, which I think is a term that's become absolutely absurd because of the connotations, you know, attached to it in pop culture and things like that. People going out, you know, with flashlights looking for a, a good scare – you know, that doesn't constitute finding anything that's verifiable about, to me at least, about, uh, I mean, people may have their experiences, and that will lend to the greater body of knowledge, but, you know, when it comes to trying to really understand strange phenomenon, you know, I think that, that doesn't lend, uh, you know, a, a whole lot, uh, you know, people going out, you know, trying to get scared in graveyards at night. But that said, uh, Chris and I, we sat there, and he said, you know, literally, the, the, the conversation came to a point where we said, I wonder if we could put together an equation. That, that would, you know, deal with some of, you know, maybe not an equation that could be solved, but could at very least be balanced, and you could plug in variables about a given environment and try and learn something from that environment in that way. So, so yeah, there are a lot of young researchers out there, and I have the good um, 
inclination, I think, to, to, to feel that a lot of them are people who are brilliant minds who maybe just don't take like you or I do, Mike, you know, to the blog sphere or to podcasting and get those ideas out there. But I encourage people to do it. And it was like you said before we began the interview, you know, it's really not difficult to podcast. And this seems to be one of these new mediums for expressing thought and ideas. And I love seeing people getting out there and doing that. And for that matter, thank you again for having me on the program today so that we can try and get some more of that out there uh, during the course of this conversation. Yeah, this is so. So as you were talking, I made some notes, and uh, and just so you know, you talk fast, and and uh, so I do. Tell I also, me if I need to slow down. No, no, this is great. This is great because we can cram more information in the thing. I talk, I also talk really fast, but um, uh, so yeah, I, I talk fast and write slow. So that's a part of the reason I've been doing this audio stuff is because if I had to write it out, it would you know. Uh, um, it would take eons. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would, I would <laughs> get even more gray hair. So, um, one of the things I've been doing, which is very interesting, I've just been sort of like in in a group of people. I've just been asking, like, so you know, got any weird experiences? And uh, what happens is, and I don't, I don't have a number. This is all anecdotal. I'll say half the people I ask, sure, say, yeah, I do. You know, like this one woman in town told me the story of being a little girl and hearing a tapping on her back door. She like, you know, had a, had a glass door that, that slid sideways and opened up onto the back porch, you know, from her bedroom. And there was a tapping on the door in the middle of the night. And she looked out there and there was this figure and she wasn't scared at all. And it sort of darted off. And so she went out, there was a big tall figure and she went out there and then basically in her backyard confronted you know, a wizard, like full on like Gandalf with the big pointy wizard hat and the long gray beard and I wish I could remember right now, but but the, there was like a one little bit of dialogue that the wizard shared with her, and it was this sort of uh, you know metaphorical little thing. He said, "I wish I could remember it now. I can't." But um, you know, and that was just and and I hear those stories all the time. Now here's a story that doesn't have anything to do with alien abduction, okay. uh, though it does have something to do with you know you know very much it could have been like Uncle Joe in a wizard costume, you know, playing a joke on her. But it didn't sound <laughs> like that, you know. Um, well, sure. Uh, and and I've heard so you know I just basically went around the table, and and then you know people shared one story after another, and they all had that. Um, and I'm going to jump back to the term campfire story. Use that term campfire story, and that is that is that. I mean, how to say it? A campfire story has its own flavor. You know what I mean? They're mm-hmm. short. They they they're sort of open ended. They and I, and I think the campfire story, as far as our our place on the planet, you know, like the campfire story serves a purpose. I think it's hardwired into us, you know, down through the eons. Uh, oh, yeah. That we like. There's something seductive about the campfire story. And, uh, you know, and then one person after another told me these little simple stories that were all kind of short and they were all kind of open-ended and they didn't really have a answer. Um, you know, it wasn't like a tidy uh, like a, a story, you know, with beginning, middle, and end. It was just this open-ended little puzzling thing. Um, and, and, uh, you know, in it, they all seem to have the flavor of like a, like a Zen Cohen, you know, like they, they have like the, you know, like, like this, that you, there, you're left with this sort of question. Mm. Uh, and, and so I just thought that was, uh, as far as the direct experience, people who claim the direct experience, um, you know, they're, they're on one end of the continuum, you know, there's, there's a, you know, UFO abductees like Whitley Strieber who have uh, such a wealth of experience. And then on the other hand, end of the continuum it seems that just about everyone has a little simple open-ended mysterious story to share in their life yeah and conventionally see i think that that a lot of people they will they will have that kind of experience at some point or maybe several times throughout their lives and just like i was saying earlier they might not recognize that for being something extraordinary or even you know consequential 
at the time that it happened. You know, they'll think about it. For instance, I remember, uh, you know, again, I say I've been into this stuff since I was a kid. And I'd heard this story that a friend of my mother's uh, had told about right here in, in, in the mountains of western North Carolina. This person had, had told this story. Um, his name was Bruce. We called him Uncle Bruce because he was a drummer that played in a, uh, in a, in a jazz and blues group that my, my dad played in. Because in addition to being a minister and having studied martial arts and, you know, you know, speaking several languages and things like that. My dad's quite polymathic, and I guess I, I take after him in terms of trying to pursue those kinds of interests. But my, my father also is a musician, as am I. And he and I even actually play in a bluegrass band together called Runners of the Green Laurel. Here in, and in what the do area. you play? Uh, I play guitar, but m- my dad plays everything. In, in this group, he plays banjo. And we, uh, you know, our stuff's actually available online. I, you know, m- my friend, uh, Red Pill Junkie. Uh, oh, I know. And, yep, yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. He uh, he was telling me the other day. He says, "Man, you're crazy if you don't have that stuff linked up to your your Grayling Report website." So I need to get that hooked up. I've done blog posts about you know some of my uh, my music and things, but I end up usually keeping my my interests kind of you know separated. And I probably shouldn't do that. I should probably get some things up so that people can hear. And I work uh, as an illustrator, and I do not post any of my uh, links to my illustration stuff on my yeah. blog. It just seems but, like that's its own separate thing. I do have a separate little uh, website where I you know use to promote my um. Or just as a resource for people who want to look at my stuff. So. Well, you see, I've seen your artwork, and I'm I'm very, 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 very impressed with what you've done. And what have you seen? Uh, let's see. You did. Uh, what was the most recent thing you did? I guess you, you'd done uh, Mac Tony's artwork, yep, right? Yeah, Mac Tony's the book for his, his last book, which um, and and talk about like paranormal stuff. I mean, if that that the uh, act of doing that book, and that was shortly after he died, and I was I considered Mac a pretty close friend, though I had never mm-hmm. met him, though we had a lot of late night phone conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that the process of doing that book, you know, like I felt like I was tapping into the the paranormal. I was, I was, um, I have, so I have a lot of like small little anecdotes that relate to the to the act of doing that book. Yeah, that's fa- it's fantastic art you did. Also, hey, real quick, can I ask you a question? Did you uh, were you asked to do the artwork before or after Mac uh, passed away? Mac and I talked about me doing the artwork. Actually, I was like, you know, he knew I knew he was working on the book, and we had talked about the book and and. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, and I was like pretty much shameless. I'm like Mac, you know, you need chapter openers and you need some illustrations in this book. What do you, you know, I'll, I'll do anything. Tell me what you need. And he's like, oh, so we had talked about it, and and we'd actually sent a few illustrations back and forth shortly before he died. And we'd also talked a lot about um, our crumb and how much oh, we yeah. were both big fans of our crumb. So so the style of those illustrations was purposely in a in a sort of scratchy our crumb, you know, uh, black ink style. Oh, that's so funny that you mentioned that because, you know, I was just talking to, uh, I guess it was probably during that Future Theater radio interview the other night. Uh, one of my first articles in Fate magazine was illustrated by R. Crumb. Oh, my word. Y- yeah, yeah. The, which, the which illus- was, was it the illustration? Was it because I know he did a Bigfoot article? I mean, a Bigfoot illustration. He, yeah, he's done several. There was there was Bigfoot is everywhere, which was a Fate magazine cover that had uh, you know his you know he he started doing a, a character you know uh, where, that was a female Bigfoot that would kidnap men and things like that. You know, yeah, back in the nineteen 19- giant buxom big butted hairy you know primal woman that you know that was yeah. obviously like, you know like a fetish thing. Yeah. Oh gosh, yeah. Which a lot of his artwork you know is is like that, and that's part of what's so fun about it. But uh, you know, I, it's it's ridiculous to me that people get offended by that kind of thing these days because I mean it, this is this is obviously you know. Mr. Crumb's boyhood fantasies coming out in his artwork, and I think that that's delightful in a lot of ways. Yes, it can be sick. Yeah, it can be perverse. But if you if you understand uh, what Crumb's trying to do with a lot of his you know sickness and perversion and things like that that he puts into his artwork, he's making he's creating social commentary. You know, uh, and, you know. And I'll also say that yeah, just like the act of editing, like the act of like uh, like gritting your teeth and holding back, is you know sort of anti 
creative process. Oh, of course. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we do have cultural, you know, standards and societal standards that we have to live by, you know. But uh, but you're right. I think when it comes to art, uh, you know, people are, are disgusted by what they perceive to be perverse things. You know, a lot of people just think they have this antiquated attitude towards nudity, for instance. And since the Renaissance, there's been a reason why nudity in the human body you know, have been, you know, adored and have been represented, you know, beautifully in art. You know, art is what teaches us to think abstractly. I love art. I love poetry because they get my mind, you know, working differently on what I consider already fairly abstract subjects, which are alien abduction, Bigfoot, you know, these kinds of things, things that most people put well outside the boundaries of what they call reality. And I love these things because they stretch for me those boundaries. They cause me to ask what reality really is. And this is why I keep coming back to philosophy and science of the mind and things like this is because we don't really know what reality is. Again, you know, to the best that the five senses, or some might say the six senses, you know, um, to the best that those abilities innate to humans are able to discern, we can try and understand reality as we perceive it, but we don't really know what it is. We can't quantify it, and there are things that well, do occur. Yeah, there's a lot of vocabulary words that we can't uh, define. I mean, like, you know, consciousness, reality, yeah. uh, mystical, uh, uh Paranormal. All these things are these are vocabulary words that 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 um, that we get used, and they almost all seem to have quotes around them in a funny way because we can't, you know, love. Uh, you know, we can't define these things in in a way that that would satisfy the you know uh, the em- empirical statistician or the or the you know very uh, clinical uh, scientist. If you want. <laughs> So you were like listing the books that that had been inspirational to you, and and uh, and some of the books that were very inspirational to me at a certain chapter of my life, which is very interesting. I got very much swallowed up into reading channeled books, um, mm. and there's some good ones out there. And in the sense that uh, there's um, a pattern that I've seen where people who claim the alien abduction or the overt direct contact experience uh, will. Uh, often say that they have started channeling that and there's another pattern that's that's equally as interesting is where researchers they'll they'll dismiss the, the, the these claims of channeling with such contempt that i find that almost more interesting you know what i consider very open-minded researchers or people you know either just looking into this will will as soon as someone says you know and now i've started channeling we'll just walk you know basically you know in some form or another just turn their back on the whole uh, the, you know that individual, and just and just let them drop off the off the map, which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you know, uh, I mean, the the phenomena is already bizarre to start with, and then someone says, "Oh, here I'm going to add another little bizarre little uh, data point to this already bizarre phenomena," and then people say, "Well, that's just too bizarre. I'm going to ignore that," uh, and I find that uh, very interesting. Yeah, I think. Um Personally, a part of what that kind of points to uh, is that there is an aspect that is uh, very metaphysical. You know, again, you know, we have to use these these terms and things, you know, which trying to say what is metaphysical. You know, I guess just things that you know, spiritual things outside maybe the, uh, you know, again the five senses. I think that for a lot of folks, uh, you know, it 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 becomes kind of you know voodoo or something. Once an an abductee or a person who claims to have uh, you know interest in or maybe even have their own experiences uh, with something along the lines of alien abduction or UFOs, when they begin to describe you know channeling and spiritual experiences, yeah, a lot of people discount that. But uh, if we look honestly 
at the history of, of you know, claims of contact with alien individuals. I mean, grab a copy of uh, Contact Tease by Nick Redfern. You know, that's just one book that deals with that. And actually, I touch on it a good bit in my book, Magic Mysticism of the Molecule, as well, because, uh, and, and you'll see where I'm going with this here in just a moment, uh, you know, looking at the history of magical practices throughout uh, you know, history, uh, it, you know, with the aim of trying to, you know, either contact or converse with or reach a higher plane of existence or, or, or you, know, you know, contact with some sentient intelligence elsewhere. Um, if you look at the history of, you know, magical practices, mystical and mysticism and spiritualism, and, and then also entheogenic studies and things like that, you know, involving what people, you know, might call psychonauts and things like that, ranging from Rick Strassman's research to, you know, just a host of other things. You will begin to find that uh, that spiritualism runs tandem completely with you know the ongoing effort to contact extraterrestrial or alien presences. I draw a distinction there, by the way. You know, I think that although we we typically would call quote unquote you know aliens, UFO occupants, you know extraterrestrials, if we look at books like you know Mactani's book, uh, you know there are there are some well versed theories that have been posed over the years that that deal with the you know the possibility that they may not be extraterrestrial in the uh, conventional sense. You know, Jacques Vallée is supposed an interdimensional hypothesis, which I think probably, um, again, that's so far outside the bounds of reality for a lot of people that they just aren't comfortable talking about that. But to me, it seems like a more, a more plausible theory. And for a number of physical reasons, uh, if not the, uh, the possibility, uh, again, you know, Vallée seems most plausible, if not, uh, the 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 other alternative there, which is that you know these UFO craft, whatever they are, are from here someplace, which is what Tony's um, kind of uh, you know expressed in the crypto terrestrials, and uh, as as difficult as that one is for people to buy, it's a uh, it's a fascinating theory, and I think it's worthy of of a lot of of depth and and and, and deeper uh, consideration. But <clears throat> that said, if you look back through the history of people's attempts at contacting these intelligences, aliens, extraterrestrials, crypto-terrestrials, whatever you want to call them. Sentient intelligences is a term I like to use. Um, you'll, you'll notice that, you know, at the end of what was, you know, kind of the spiritualism movement, you know, uh, well, at least the, the one that, that, that spanned the, the 19th century and into the 20th, spirit mediums prior to the, the you know, the famous contactees, George Adamski, George Hunt Williams, uh, you know, some of these individuals, you, you, you begin to see that, uh, that, that, that there were mediums and spiritualists who at seances and traditional spiritual kind of gatherings uh, claimed to be you know, in contact with space people and, and denizens of other planets, you know, Venetians, uh, you know, uh, Martians, all kinds of things. Um, and then later, they're, they're, this kind of changed over from being you know, primarily the use of channeling to communicate with, with, you know, alleged extraterrestrial intelligences and things. It, it then changed over, interestingly, primarily this occurred after uh, Kenneth Arnold's sighting of, of, you know, what we called flying saucers or what the press called flying saucers. He had, he'd used the term saucer, and I think the press took it from there. And then also this alleged incident down in Roswell. You know, once it became public knowledge that there could be craft visiting planet Earth, all of a sudden the contactees kind of shift over, and they start saying that they are uh, – 
you know, being visited by these people in actual craft, physical craft that land in front of them. But still, there's a psychic component. People say that they communicate telepathically with these beings. This continues right on up into the uh, the 60s and the 1970s with uh, with reports like uh, the uh, the abduction of Betty and Barney Hill and people like that. You know, whatever we're to make of these reports, you know, the witnesses said that these beings spoke. Uh, and communicated with them telepathically, and, and that is almost one hundred percent universal. I mean, that that is yeah. that is a one hundred percent truism uh, in the data that that shows up over and over and over again with, with such consistency that that one's hard to ignore. It is, you know, and I don't know what to make of something, you know, specifically. And coming back to what you discussed there, channeling, you know, I don't, I don't know what personally to make of that. I think that there have been some fascinating instances. I was reading Lloyd Arbach's book Mind Over Matter the other day, and he was describing. I don't remember the. The artist's name, but there was an artist who claimed to be able to channel not only famous artists but multiple artists at a time, and he even was was able to to uh, you know have, for instance, he could be doing a you know a pencil drawing or a painting at the same time with with you know a a tool, a pencil or or a paintbrush in both the right and the left hand, and then also you know he could have a piece of charcoal or another pencil between his toes in each foot. And he could literally be simultaneously drawing, sketching, or painting uh, renderings in the style of artists he claimed that he was able to channel. And now, who is this? You know, I, I can find that guy's name for you. And actually, tell you the truth, I hate to cut again, but if you'd like that name, I could grab the book. The book's right over here on the shelf. I just have to get sure, up and sure, grab that. Sure, sure. fascinating to me. Yeah, whatever stops me. Let me see this. Uh, have you ever read this book, Mind Over Matter? No. It's a very interesting, uh, very interesting book. And, and Auerbach, you know, he's he's... He's also more skeptical than he lets on, but but he's he's not someone who's going to rule out you know possibilities. And let me see if I can find. I think it's in the introduction. He talks about this uh, this individual. You would find this very interesting. And I haven't even looked at this man's work, you know. But we could we could follow up on this after There's the fact. There's this tool called the internet. Yeah, who knows what? <laughs> That's exactly right. Uh, this fella. Oh wait 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 hold on. This might be it right here. No, that's an Israeli psychic. Uh, an Israeli see. psychic? The guy that bends spoons? <laughs> Not that Israeli psychic. <laughs> Surprisingly, there are others, apparently. I'm trying to find this, this fella here, though. Um, I'm literally speed reading through here to find this, uh, this reference to this fella. Okay. Here we are. Uh, Luis Gasparetto. There are some videos on YouTube of this man working. Oh, good, okay. Oh, there's some linked videos here. Yeah, okay. But this sure. this stuff is fascinating to me. So, good. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, where was I going with this? Oh, so the uh, the channeling thing. Channeling, uh, yeah. <clears throat> there, there's, a, there's an author and a contactee who had profound UFO experiences. She just died this last year in 2010 at the age of 95, and her name was Ida Cannonberg. And, mm. and near the end of her life, she was, she was very hard of hearing, but I did exchange a few emails with her, which I was very excited to do. Uh, she was close friends with Leo Sprinkle. I'm not. You must be familiar with him. I'm not actually. Good grief! Oh my gosh, he's like. Uh, I, I did an interview with Leo, and Leo is uh, just turned 80, and he has been doing research since 1961. That means he's been doing research for 50 years. <laughs> and uh, I did. An, uh, there's an interview logged on my site here. That's great. And a lot of he, you know, shows up all the time. People interview him, but he um, was sort of at the forefront of the of the whole phenomena. He was one of the very first people to use uh, hypnosis as a mm. tool to retrieve memories. Some people will say that he's the first one to use it, and he's very quick to say, no, no, no. 
And he's also, uh, this is gets so strange, in the 1980s, you know, 25 years into his role as a UFO abduction researcher, he came forward with his own set of abduction experiences. Now, this is something, we're jumping away from channeling, but, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, this is something that uh, happens often. Uh, Raymond Fowler has come forward with his own set of abduction experiences and didn't do that until late in his career. I, I actually made a little uh, chart at one point where I compared it, the, the, the UFO abduction researchers who claim to have their own set of experiences versus the ones who don't. Uh, and, and the list is really long. And I will also add, there are a handful of these individuals that don't talk about it publicly, but I have sat with them at UFO conferences. Oh, yeah. And, and then they'll, you know, kind of look both ways in the crowd and then share their own experience. And, Mike, um, that is, uh, let me just tell you, I've had that happen too. Yeah, where candidly, I'll go up and I'll talk to someone after their presentation and they'll be like, you know, well, I think I could trust you. And then it all, it all comes spilling out, you know. I mean, that's, that's very interesting. <laughs> that's, well, I think it's interesting. It also shows that there's a, quite a limitation that unfortunately is placed on thought and credibility you know, based on, you know, people can study something, but, you know, they, they suddenly lose their credibility if they say that they've experienced it themselves, and this could be the impetus for their interest in the subject to begin with. I mean, people could study something, you know, like, uh, you know, nearsightedness, and they might be nearsighted, and, and that wouldn't affect their credibility at all. But they, they, they uh, but once you yeah. get into the alien abduction phenomena, they, you know, like, I, and, and I speak from, author, you know, like from firsthand experience, uh, I have, I'm very cautious to come forward and, and use the term alien abduction. In fact, I'm, I'm more than just cautious. I, I don't say that about my personal set of experiences, but there are researchers that have sat with me and told me to my face that that's what I am. And I'm like, ah, without the firsthand direct experience, I can't go there. How to say this? The way I say it is like there's puzzle pieces on the table, you know, and they interlock. And sometimes there's a hole between the puzzle pieces. And you can kind of look at it and just and infer what, what will be on that puzzle piece. And in a way, uh, like I have, I have, like there's the puzzle pieces that are missing from my grand puzzle uh, certainly indicate that that's what's in those hidden empty spaces. Uh, hmm. Though, though, until I have a direct memory, um, I, I can't. I just can't say it. It just doesn't feel honest to say that. What I can say is that I have interacted with something very real uh, and and very confusing. Yeah, and, and you know, I think that this this brings to mind something else, Mike. I think that a lot of people who don't involve themselves in in you know. Uh, you know, abduction phenomenon or psychic research or cryptozoology, when they have an experience, they, uh, they tend to, uh, if, again, if they're unfamiliar with, you know, the literature uh, on these subjects, when they have a strange experience, well, a great example of that sort of experience is sleep paralysis, uh, they will tend to feel that something really bizarre has happened. I've, you know, I've spoken to people who had no knowledge of what sleep paralysis was, um, people even who have been playing video games and have literally been so into the video game they were playing that they said that they felt like they suddenly were outside themselves watching themselves playing the video game. You know, that's an interesting thing. And the notion that maybe some sort of a stimulation or biofeedback, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, that, that, that occurs in the, uh, and the act of playing a video game could elicit an altered state of consciousness. And, I doubt- and, and why is that any different than, than, in essence, the ritual act of sitting in front of the mirror in the dark room? You know, exactly. Yes, exactly. Staring at something and, and your mind literally being taken away from you know the here and now into another, 
you know, realm of existence, so to speak. But when people ex- describe these sorts of things, you know, I had a friend one time who said I woke up in the morning uh, and uh, he said I, I, I literally couldn't move my body at all. I could hear noise going on around me, but I was so terrified by what was occurring. Uh, and I accepted that uh, I was dying. And although I was terrified, I just tried to relax and just ask Jesus to go ahead and just take me and make this easy. But then I got terrified again just as I was beginning to finally calm down and accept what was occurring, I got I got terrified because I, I came to this realization that my family could be hurt by this. What would they think if I left them? What what would they think that, you know, and what was interesting is that this was clearly sleep paralysis because he said just about the time that he uh, became terrified at the thought of his family, you know, losing him and, and being distraught over this, he began to try and, you know, freak out and, and scream, you know, try and get help or something like that. And that he all of a sudden snapped out of it. And when he woke up, he said some of the strange noises and things he'd been hearing in the room with him that made him feel that this was maybe a spiritual experience were suddenly gone. And he just didn't understand what happened. And he said, and I never questioned it. But, you know, when he heard me talking about uh, spiritualism and sleep paralysis, I, I, may not even, I may have not even brought up sleep paralysis. I think we may have just been talking about ghostly encounters and things. And, and, you know, again, this was kind of coming back to your idea of the campfire story. He said, well, you know, one time this strange thing happened to me and I thought I was dying, but I'd never tell anybody this. He was afraid he was going crazy. He didn't know what was happening. Uh, many people have actually been, you know, diagnosed with some sort of mild psychosis by virtue of the fact that they have woken up coming out of a sleep state and experienced strange things occurring. While clearly there's some element of the mind that is still sort of dreaming, but the body is waking up, you know, and sleep paralysis is quite common. Many people have experienced that. Many people who are clinical researchers who study it, study it because they've had those experiences. Dr. David, uh, David J. Hufford was one of these individuals who, you know, had this happen to him, and he wanted to know what it was. And he studied it in every culture virtually around the world that he can think of and has found that, you know, this this idea of the devil riding your back, the witch riding your back. The you old know, hag the syndrome, sure. Old hag, night hag, all these things, you know. It's a consistency from culture to culture that people have these experiences. And, yes, I, too, have experienced it. But coming back to the notion of people's experiences, if they don't have an understanding of the literature pertaining to this stuff – and then they interpret that like my friend did, for instance, that he thought I was dying. And I thought that this was clearly a religious experience and I was meant to, to see, you know, what life after death might be like. I, on the other hand, having read magazines like Fate and, uh, you know, UFO Magazine, Mysteries Magazine, some of these, you know, for years, also Skeptical Inquirer, you know, <laughs> um, I've, I've been exposed to literature about sleep paralysis. And I was very surprised the first time it ever happened to me. Uh, because and it's not something that happens often. I think there have maybe been two instant incidents in my entire life. But I, again, when it occurred, I remember thinking, "Oh, wow! How fascinating! I never thought this is the kind of thing that would happen to me." And I knew exactly what to do. I started moving the tip of my little first finger, moving my whole finger, moving my entire hand, and then by the time I could move my forearm, I was I snapped out of it. And I knew that because I'd read another, uh, you know. I guess, report or, you know, a description of someone having that. And they said that they discovered that they could snap out of it by doing that. So, you know, I think it's interesting that, you know, although I knew what was going on and I have my own physiological, uh, you know, feelings about what's going on there, I think a lot of people when they experience something that's out of, the, you know, out of the blue and seems completely miraculous or unexplainable or supernatural even, it really messes with them and they don't talk about their experiences. They don't know how to deal with it, you know. Absolutely, and I'm going to jump back to this book um, 
uh, that was written by Ida Cannonberg, and she wrote a handful of books, and this is the one that I would recommend everyone read. The, it was published in 1992, um, and it's called UFOs and the Psychic Factor, How to Understand mm. Encounters with UFOs and ETs. And in it, she um, she kind of gives her life story, which is very interesting. She had uh, what would be a classic gray alien uh, UFO abduction experience, a roadside uh, abduction it, in the mid-1940s before the Kenneth Arnold sighting, you know, the, what, what's considered the, the starting point for the modern era of, of the UFO phenomena. Um, and she talks about uh, on and off contact throughout her life. And then it got so intense, I think in the 70s, that she was actually institutionalized for a while. Oh, really? Well. And then, you know, and then she came out of that and then she started channeling and as a writer she is i mean she's uh if you look at photographs of her she's an what amounts to an adorable cute grandmother and Mm -hmm. then she's very funny and she's like sassy the way like only like a cute grandmother can be and (laughs) she writes in that style so it's like her interactions with these channeled entities uh is quite funny the way she writes about it because huh. um, so, but one of the things she does discuss, and I'm doing this from memory, so I'm just paraphrasing from memory sure. <laughs> here, um, sh- which I think is it's interesting because I've heard you talk about these things in, in in a way where she talked about the difference between the physical contact and then what would be the ethereal contact, uh, you know, some sort of contact that happens on a psychic level and not on a physical level at all, and and she does this through you know, this kind of back and forth question and answer with these psychic entities and, and it's all uh, transcribed. So it sort of comes off in a conversation form. Mm. And um, she says that the, that, you know, physical contact does take place. Some of the abduction encounters that people report are real. They are physically real. They are craft that are associated with, uh, with the contact experience and technology is used. And she basically says, you know, you know, or from their end, and this it comes across very funny uh, in the mm-hmm. sassy pants sort of way. Um, they, you know, the entities basically say, you know, it's a lot of work for us to go through the process of abducting <laughs> folks. You know, we got to come there and it takes up this energy and it's, we got to be stealthy. And, and, uh, and then they say, you know, what's a lot easier for us and what we do most of the time is we just abduct people ethereally, and we have the ability, you know, we, I'm speaking, you know, we being the, the, the aliens sure. in, in this sense, um, th- they have the ability to so efficiently create a set of screen memories that are so fantastically perfect that uh, it doesn't matter. You know, the abductee has the experience and has a set of memories, and that's all they care about. And it sounds like they don't even care if the memories are are buried subconsciously and, and forgotten, or if the memories are on the surface. It seems like the, the effect that they're going for is the same. And hmm. oftentimes, um, the abduction experience, the, the narrative itself will have a mythological content. Mm-hmm. And um, and then she would go about and dissect those. She went through, you must be familiar with Raymond Fowler's book, uh, the Andreessen Andreessen affair. affair. Yeah. yeah, so she went through and just sort of dissected those and said, you know, this was the real encounter, there's an encounter where, um, like, a, a craft lands in the yard, and, and the beings, you know, come into the house very mm-hmm. early on. And there's a very funny thing, which which I'm just going to jump back to, uh, in that story, uh, in the Andreasen affair. Uh, you know, the flying saucer lands in the yard. These beings uh, sort of walk in lockstep and enter the house, 
and they walk. They don't open the door. They just, you know. Yeah, they kind of phase through it, don't phase they? Phase right through the door. And yeah. she said, and then Ida Kannenberg in her analysis of this says that, um, you know, that was a real, one of the real things. But now this is, I'm just going to jump back because I, I would just love to get your take on this. The sure. uh, Betty Andreasen does something that I thought was very funny, like in this uh, panic uh, ever the American housewife, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. The first thing she does is she realizes that she should cook something for them. So she like <laughs> runs to the kitchen and starts cooking in this kind of like frantic, fear-induced way. And and then she basically asks, you know, should I cook something for you? And then they say, they answer, they say, you know, yes, you can cook something for us, but we can only eat it if you burn it. Yeah, that's right. And that, would... that's like straight out of uh, of uh, the Moses thing, where um, you know the the uh, angels can't eat. There's something you know burnt offerings. They can only eat the burnt offerings. You know, that, yeah. So that that to me is like this funny little like wow. There's like a mythological thing that is oh, yeah. showing up present day. Uh, anyway, there so, might be. Oh, go on. I was going to say there might be two ways to view that. You know, we could say that uh, you know that if we want to take the uh, the, the von Daniken or, or actually even you know the, the Sagan approach to paleo contact, uh, then then maybe in ancient times men were you know uh, visited by what we would call aliens today, what were called angels then that wanted quote unquote burnt offerings. You know, or we could look at it as, as many abduction researchers have with regard to uh, Betty Andreessen, uh, who who had. Uh, what what amounted to a religious experience, you know, because of course later in the book, you know, in addition to having these individuals show up who want to, uh, you know, who have this, uh, you know, this this desire to eat something, I think that 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 particular uh, being was called Quazaga or something like that. Quazaga, I think, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, and I have a, I think a bad tendency to to mispronounce some of these strange kind of kind of what would you call it onomatopoeia almost kind of names and things that yeah, you know they, they sound like exactly like the like what the scriptwriter would write for a, like a like a bad 1950s science fiction. Yeah, or oh, who knows? Maybe we're all mispronouncing these things exactly because there's so much there's so many variables in how they. But anyway, that, I'm getting off the point again. But. Uh, I think that, you know, you could look at it two different ways there, you know, uh, with regard to either that, you know, maybe there was, this is evidence of, you know, a consistency with, you know, like you said, a mythological or even a religious parallel. Or you could say that Betty Andreessen's own experience, uh, you know, had some very stark, uh, you know, religious overtones. I mean, for instance, you know, when this uh, this phoenix apparently appeared before her when she was taken to this location, I think she got the impression she was on a planet, but, uh, you know, some some of, you know, I don't know. There have been a lot of different interpretations of what exactly was happening. She claimed she was taken on board a craft and put in some sort of a container and that there was that kind of kind of syrupy stuff that, you know, was put in her mouth. And then she was taken off the craft and was in this environment, you know, where she could see buildings and she could see clouds and things. And she was taken kind of up this conveyor belt by Quasgar or whatever his name was and uh, and the others. And, uh, and she was brought before this bird. And then the bird burns as it's communicating telepathically. You know, it literally indicates uh, that it is God or that it is Jesus. Um, it it turns into this worm, you know, in, in the, that comes out of the ashes. This is the classic, uh, you know, representation of the phoenix in in mythology. But interestingly, the phoenix was adopted in early Christian iconography as well because of the whole, uh, you know, dying and then coming to life again, which was sort of representative of the uh, the resurrection. So so the, it's interesting. And yeah, in addition to mythological. There's this archetypal kind of thing and, and a folkloric and, again, a religious uh, element to a lot of these kinds of encounters. Actually, I want to take it back real quick to something that you'd spoken about earlier. You'd said that you had a friend who had, who had encountered a wizard in the backyard. 
And uh, if we were to look at that from a Jungian psychology perspective, uh, you know, Carl Jung might have said that that was an encounter with the, what I think he called the man of personality. Uh, you know, and, and, and actually there's a great essay he wrote about phenomenology and about, you know, uh, you know contact and, and, and interaction with archetypal elements of the, of the uh, subconsciousness. And, and, and he describes that people actually do have uh, encounters in dreams particularly with wizards and the wizards will bring information. There was one, you know, fascinating dream that one of his patients described where they, they'd been standing there with this, I think it was a, a wizard clad in white and that this wizard had all this knowledge, and then a black wizard showed up, a wizard who was clad in black, and he was carrying something, and he was trying to find some sort of information. And the discourse between these these two wizards was being observed by the dreamer, and it was just very, very, very fascinating. First, I have to say it was an incredibly, incredibly in-depth dream as described by, by Young. But I found, I found that interesting that, uh, that there, again, you know, in, in reports of strange phenomenon, there is often... A, a you know what we would call an archetypal or a folkloric, religious, or mythological overtone, you know, and that there's a, a by virtue of that there is a consistency throughout the ages of people's claims of contact with these sentient intelligences, whatever they might represent, you know, whether it be you know folklore from the you know from the fairies and, and things like that, you know, from the British Isles or pertaining to fairies and folklore and, and fairy tales, uh, or you know the more modern reports of alien abduction and encounters with wild men, you know, I, I think that the, that you know it's 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 worth noting those consistencies and the similarities between what we call mythology and archetypes and religion and these modern experiences. They're, they're very likely in some capacity uh, one and the same. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and Brad Steiger is very skilled at saying, you know, that in, in his, uh, in his you know, deep voice that, uh, that all these experiences, the UFO phenomena, the poltergeist experience, the ghost phenomena um, are – you know, welling up from the same pool. They're all part oh, yeah. of the same soup, which yeah. I agree with in a lot of ways. I had a, um, a conversation with a, a woman. Her name is Kim Carlsberg, and she is an abductee. She has channeled. She's had the military stuff. She's had the missing baby stuff. She's had, you know, like right down the line. She's, she, you know, you can like, if you had a little checklist of all the things that are reported in the mo- modern UFO abduction lore, she fits all of them. She basically says that the act of communicating telepathically somehow stimulates a part of whether it's the brain or the psyche or the grand higher self. She basically says once you're opened up, you're opened up to everything and everything starts rushing in. And that's her very simple and in, in, uh, in, in a very good analysis of why people with the abduction phenomena claim the poltergeist phenomena, claimed heightened uh, synchronicities, claim um, psychic skills. Yeah, and I don't think you can remove the spiritual aspect uh, that that often is associated with, with alien abduction and those claims, whether that be through channeling or the, the numerous instances where people claim that they've been abducted or something like that, and then they, uh, you know, suffer... Uh, from some, from psychic visions, you know, I say suffer because a lot of people say, you know, I wish I didn't have this ability to see what was going to happen in the future. I kind of would rather be willfully ignorant, you know. And they 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 say that after their experiences, they suddenly have you know this kind of um, enhanced ability to perceive things, you know, uh, with what may be the sixth sense, or as uh, the uh, the British psychic detective Robert Cracknell, whose book I recently read and reviewed, uh, 
would say he he thinks that it's actually just an extension of the five senses and that it's kind of kind of a misinterpretation to assume that there is a sixth sense that is capable of um perceiving other people's you know impressions and, and vibes and thoughts even or or maybe even reading the future or the past you know as as has been useful for him as a psychic detective you know Cracknell would say it's not a sixth sense it's it's our five senses you know and increasing and 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 growing in their ability to discern things about the natural environment and people who are naturally more sensitive through the through the faculties of the five senses are what we would call psychics or intuitives and many people who have been abducted by aliens or claimed to have been uh you know describe having those those sort of psychic faculties you know uh en- enhancing in some way you also see however that there is a uh, a lot of uh a lot of uh, parallels between people's reports of, of, you know, having, you know, experienced something called, you know, um, well, rather experiencing an electrical accident, particularly early in life, and then developing uh, conditions like uh, what is called electrical hypersensitivity and multiple allergy. Uh, I met one person in my life who, I don't know if they were clearly diagnosed with that, but this woman seemed to be a likely candidate. She she lived in a, in a house that was built of steel because she couldn't live in a house where there was wood, uh, if if the wood ever begun to rot, the, uh, the, the you know the, the fungus and things like that or mold literally would just wreak havoc on her. She had to live in a si- in, in a separate portion on, on on the far side of the house from where all electrical devices were, because she said electromagnetic fields kept her awake at night. Uh, she didn't uh, express to me whether she had had an electrical accident in her youth or anything uh, herself, but I know many people who suffer from what's called uh, electrical hypersensitivity and multiple allergy. Uh, have experienced that before. Incidentally, many of these people also claim to have contact with aliens and with extraterrestrial beings, UFOs, ghosts, spirits, poltergeists, you know, and psychic phenomena and things like that. So is it that, you know, that that, it, that it's an entirely delusional state that, that stems from having, you know, the, the, the chemical, you know, uh, capacities of the body altered as a result of an accident? Or is it that some people's awareness is heightened by something that occurs, something that sort of serves as a catalyst to opening the senses to more things. You know, maybe, uh, you know, there are accidents and things that could lend to themselves to people's perceived abduction, you know, later in life by aliens. Maybe that experience, if we were to look at it as being a physical phenomenon unto itself, could be the actual catalyst itself. And again, you know, either way, there's a consistency between people describing channeling psychic abilities and premonitions and things in conjunction with uh, their claims of reports of uh, abduction. And uh, I will say that I have had, and I haven't talked about this too much um, on these podcasts, I've written about it a little bit, but I have had my own set of, uh, I don't know what I'd call them, psychic hits. And and they they show up, they are uninteresting in a way. Uh, Mundane, maybe, yeah. Yeah, mundane in a way that, you know, like I would kind of want, you know, profound psychic flashes. Where, you know, like <laughs> That's what we all want, universes, Mike. <laughs> but I don't get that. You know, I get like, you know, like I know people's birthday, you know, like before they, uh, like I, I like all of a sudden interrupt and like, what's your birthday? Like March 17th, 1982? And, and, uh, <laughs> And the person will say, uh, yes, it is. And it's like, oh, okay. how did you know? I just, uh, it just like, you know, basically it just got announced in my brain. So that has happened to me uh, a few times. I can't control it. It's totally inconsistent. And um, it's very mystifying. Hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by that sort of thing, you know. Um, I have to recommend, by the way, uh, you know, folks, if you, if you want to read a real kind of no-nonsense 
uh, approach to this sort of thing. And I'm not just uh, actually saying this because I happen to be friends with the publisher, Patrick Weege, but Anomalous Books did put out, they re-released an updated version of Robert Cracknell's book, The Lonely Sense. And Cracknell was the British psychic detective I mentioned earlier. You know, if you want a, a really, really, really kind of, uh, you know, non well actually maybe i'd say he is biased because he claims to have psychic abilities but you know cracknell stands in complete opposition to the spiritualist you know p- people out there he he maintains that yuri geller of course you know is a psychic and actually has abilities but that he felt that yuri was too too much of a showman with it and that he thought that yuri had the ability to do things like healing and that you know later in life yuri would would feel more and more like he need, needed to do that and and throughout the course of his life, the book is an autobiography, but, you know, Cracknell describes his confrontations with people in the occult and spirit realm, uh, you know, uh, not realm, but, I mean, you know, people in, in circles, you know, in, in, in society who claim to be, you know, whether they be cult leaders, you know, or, or, you know, these, you know, mystical weirdos that had a cult following of college students that were dope-smoking hippies and things like that, you know, Cracknell... He uh, he, he's very he, he was very outspoken against people who basically tried to cash in on the psychic faculties and and I think uh, you know being a person who who approaches you know claims of of psychic phenomenon and precognition and telekinesis and the like uh, I, I look at those things very skeptically um, not discounting their possible existence of course but you know I mean I just have to be skeptical because I've sat there with you know psychics on many occasions who've tried to read me tried to tell me things. And uh, very seldom have I had those instances where I thought someone seemed legitimate and seemed to actually have some sort of a gift, you know. Um, Not never, but seldom. I mean, literally maybe two or three instances with individuals I've known who have always been female, interestingly. That's interesting. And I've done some psychic sessions and, like, just recorded and then put them right online here, you know, like my own personal psychic sessions, you know, as part of this journey of personal experiences that that this, you know, this blog and podcast are – and and uh, one of the things that was funny is is you know I mean these basically the psychics say you know listen I got to support myself like I've chosen to do this as my job mm-hmm. and uh, and they all bill one hundred and twenty five dollars an hour and I ask them like well how did you come up with that number mm-hmm. and then all independently and individually they say oh the, my source guides told me to bill that so uh, whatever that's confirmation but like three separate people all and three women I'll also add. And and they were told by their guides, so they all came up with the same number. It seems like there's like a, uh, you know, a ledger pad somewhere in the in the nether world where they mm-hmm. just kind of like scroll down and have like you know the price listings all all posted there. That's funny. Um, I think actually, uh, you know, I got to sit and, and and talk with Hans Christian King once, and he's been on Coast to Coast AM. He's he's a world renowned psychic. Uh, uh, you know, Hans didn't uh, read anything off of me that was, uh, if anything, actually during the conversation, Hans was. Uh, not not uh, in in a mean way, but he he didn't seem very interested in in, in me and my involvement in all this. Uh, maybe you know again if he has true psychic abilities and and, and he's well, uh, you know well uh, you know spoken of in, in the psychic community. So you know people people say that he's one of the most remarkable psychics. You know and his clients will attest to that. You know so if indeed he has psychic faculties, maybe he picked up on my natural skepticism. <laughs> but uh, but he was a very very nice man and. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I had a chance to sit and talk with him. Angela Moore also is a you know a psychic who she's been on the Coast to Coast AM program, and uh, she uh, used to have a radio program that I produced called the Hillbilly Psychic. She's a mountain girl who um, I don't think she ch- uh, charges anything. You know, she uh, she accepts donations you know from people, but she she doesn't name a price. Uh, she's one of these psychics who uh, you know on a couple of occasions also has blown my mind you know and then there've been several others I've met over the years that haven't impressed me you know but I've I've had the good fortune of meeting a few people who 
you know, clearly they were in tune with something. You know, I think, you know, King is very in tune with the world around him in a way that other people aren't. You know, Angela Moore is in such an honest and almost curious way uh, in tune with the world and has really just, I mean, I've, I've had testimonials. Uh, you know, from from friends of hers and clients of hers who've just, I mean, it, it's blown my mind some of the things that they've said. You know, they've never been able to read me. Neither of those individuals ever, you know, read something about myself, you know. but uh, And I did, I'd be interested in talking with Robert Cracknell again. I bring him up because I think that when it comes to the, to the development of these abilities – uh, you know that that book that he uh, that, that that's recently been re-released by Anomalous Books, uh, The Lonely Sense, uh, by Robert Cracknell. Uh, that's probably one of the most interesting books about developing those abilities for oneself. And after reading that book, and actually I wrote a review at GraylianReport.com uh, about that book. Uh, you know, I've I've become more interested myself in you know trying to adopt a a, a consistent daily routine of meditation and things like that for the uh, intention of if not trying to cultivate psychic abilities, I mean, you know, just try and make myself more naturally um, tuned to my environment. A lot of what Cracknell talks about is, you know, when you're lying awake in bed at night, try and try and tune in and, and try and feel the natural vibrations of the room, the impressions that you get from the room that you're lying in. Uh, for, for Cracknell early in his life, this kind of started manifesting as a fear of the dark. And then he would sometimes get the impression at one point, I remember he was sleeping in a room uh, in his parents' house there in London, and uh, and he got, he got the distinct impression that there was an old woman in the room with him, and he came to find out later that there had been a woman who died in that room. Cracknell says this is not some sort of something that only some people have that is a gift. He says it's something that is entirely cultivated. I, didn't, I wasn't born with it. It came to me over the years and manifested in my mid to late 20s. And so I'm interested in that. You know, I don't know. I've never, ever had psychic abilities, if they exist. I don't know that I ever will. I've had some dreams that I thought, man, this is just too good to be true. And then I found out after the fact that's exactly what it was. So, And I'm thankful for that. You know, if there is such a thing as, you know, people's actual true ability to read the future and, and detect strange phenomena and things like that, you know, I'm kind of thankful that I don't have that. But so, but I think that, yes, yeah, so when it comes to psychic, you know, faculties, you know, again, yeah, that, that, that's something that is so tandem with the other strange phenomenon. And I think it's something that can be developed or every now and then there's something that can actually, uh, that can actually, uh, kind of instigate those kinds of things for people. And so I've, I've begun to experiment with it a little bit. And I, I highly recommend Robert Cracknell's book, The Lonely Sense, if other people are are interested in that. In addition to the book I mentioned earlier by Lloyd Arbach, Mind Over Matter, it's a very bare-bones, no-nonsense approach to studying claims of, of psychic uh, abilities. And it actually has a lot of little experiments that you can work, work with yourself at trying to develop psychic uh, faculties uh, of your own. I'm writing these names down. I'll, I'll, I'll link those in the show notes. Um, yeah. Hey, uh, synchronicity. Have you experienced that in your life? Yes, many times. <laughs> Incredible amounts of it. I, well, I that's think interesting because you were very quick to say that you don't have any any paranormal experiences, ex- ah. and, and, and then and then you were talking about like uh, you know trying to uh, whatever exercise the psychic muscle or whatever you know in in the sense that you were trying to you know follow these tips but then and then I ask you about synchronicity and you say oh yes many times which to mm-hmm. me once again it is in the grand you know bucket of soup that encompasses mm-hmm. all yeah. uh, uh, paranormal experiences right yeah that is funny you know again and, and and that comes back to what we kind of opened the conversation with is that I think that you know for some uh, they will look at a you know a, a synchronicity or an instance of synchronicity uh, as you know oh that's a coincidence. Uh, for a long time, I've been that kind of person, 
And then I remember, and you you mentioned Brad Steiger. Brad's a good friend. I, I love Brad Steiger. I'm uh, planning you know. to interview him, and that was that's actually sort of a coup for me. I've I've been sort of pestering him for ages. So, yeah, you know, I had the the good the good fortune, and I apologize. It sounds like I think my my neighbor may be mowing their lawn. So, oh, I can't hear uh, anything in the background. So, um, okay, it's snowing here. Just so you know. Uh, Are you kidding? I live in the mountains of Idaho. Yeah, I live, I live wow. at a pretty high elevation in the well far, you know, up near the Canadian border. So. Wow, so it's snowing where you are, and it's hot, and people are, are – it's it's balmy here, and there's dogs running outside and people mowing their yard. That That's fascinating. But Well, it's balmy here in the sense that uh, I can go out without gloves in, in a lighter <laughs> Wow. Coat. Wow, that's – that's incredible, goodness. But uh, uh, <laughs> so what was that? Oh, synchronicity. Um, I think I actually, you know, did an entire interview with Tim Beckley, Mister UFO. Um, he's best known for ufology, but he also studies synchronicity and everything. And and and, and that interview, talking with, I've, I've done several interviews with Tim over the years and participated in others that people like Joshua Warren had actually hosted. And um, and I know Tim very well. He and I correspond quite frequently, and uh, he's a good buddy. I've contributed to some of his books and things, like, uh, for for instance, the, the new one's Round Trip to Hell on a Flying Saucer, which is a very interesting book, um, which, incidentally, Nick Redfern, Brad Steiger, also contributed to. And and I've had the good fortune. Uh, Brad's Brad's always kind of taken me under his wing, and, and you know, uh, he's, he's actually featured some of my uh, work and some of my writings in books of his that he's published, uh, you know, some of his famous creature compendiums, I call them, you know, because he's got these very large books that Visible Ink Press have put out, you know, pertaining to uh, everything ranging from ghosts to, uh, you know, cryptozoological monstrosities. Uh, and, and a new one, actually, there's been one about vampires. There's even one about zombies. I think I have right, yeah, right here on the table, yep. real zombies, the living dead and creatures from the apocalypse. But uh, And then there's this new one about aliens that just came out. I'm that's the to... reason I, I contacted him when I saw that book came out. Uh, that's, yeah. you know, that's been sort of the ongoing theme of this, this blog and these podcasts. So, mm-hmm. so I, I sought him out specifically when that book came out. Well, Brad's probably one of the most mind-expanding researchers, and, uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, see, it's funny because Brad is the kind of guy who could put out a book with a title like, you know, The Star People or something like that, or The Seed, and and people would look at the book once on the shelf and be like, oh, boy, this is silly stuff, you know, and then you pick up the book, and you are absolutely drawn in. Oh, absolutely. And you, I, I and agree. And you find that Brad Steiger can broach subjects that are so—is uh, that proper terminology there? He, well, maybe, maybe we'll say he can, he can, he can take a subject that seems so weird and, and, and kind of, you know, kind of, you know, flaky to people outside the spiritual uh, or, or the metaphysical and the supernatural, you know, studies, and he can bring it to the—he can bring it back to the table with such a clarity and real-world sensibility that I think almost anyone could pick up a Brad Steiger book and, and think twice about the sorts of things that he talks about. Um, you know, he's always fascinated me. His, the depth and the wealth of Brad's knowledge is, is immeasurable. And you ask him about anything. I mean, he's best known, you know, with regard to UFOs and, uh, and research into strange phenomena and ghostly hauntings, I think, you know, in the last several years have been, you know, kind of the crux of his own research. I interviewed him asking him about cryptozoology years ago because I was trying to pitch a... Uh, a proposal at the time for a book about Bigfoot that, that looked at some of the unconventional theories pertaining to Bigfoot and the like, and, which there are a number of. And I love the fact that you know so many researchers just discount those kinds of things. I've really and, been and off- the, in the Bigfoot community. Like, like I'm, I don't have any much to do with the Bigfoot community, but the Bigfoot community will dismiss those stories with such venomous contempt. They do. You know, like that's their identity is the fact that they're looking for a real thing. You know, they're looking for a a a you know a lost giant ape that lives in the swamps of Louisiana. And uh, and if someone dares 
you know, give a different hypothesis where, it, you know, it may be a paranormal phenomenon, it may be a psychic phenomenon, it may be a phenomenon that crosses between the ether, they just cringe at that. Their identity is, is completely based on the fact that they're, they're looking for a flesh and blood thing. Oh, absolutely. And which I, is fun, said, which is fine, and I kind of like that. It, it's, you know, like, what's the fun in, I mean, you know, whatever. If it, it, uh, anyway, I, I, keep, uh, keep going. I sorry to interrupt. Oh, no, no, that's fine. No, no, you have to interrupt me because if you don't, I'll just keep talking. You know, I've got friends, uh, you know, out in Oklahoma who call me the mouth of the South. Not just Oklahoma. I mean, that's all over the place, actually. But, <laughs> you know, uh, but anywho, um, and I am. I really am. I, I will keep talking. I, I did the Paracast with Gene Steinberg the other day, and he says, you know what we love about Mike? He's such a great guest. You know, you ask a question, and he just, he'll just roll with it. <laughs> Good, <laughs> which know? is exactly the thing here. So, one more question. Go uh, ahead, yeah. Uh, owls. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I think we can move on to Owls now that I've bragged on Brother Brad enough. And, and again, I can't. As a matter of fact, actually, if you dig into his writing, I'm sure Brad Steiger's probably beaten us to the punch and talked about Owls. Oh, I, will, I'm, I very much, the, the, for some reason, don't ask me why, but the Owl thing has invaded my life in a way that I don't quite uh, understand. And, and just so you know, it's 10.38. We've been going for an hour and 38 minutes. So, um, you know, these, these things usually run around two hours. If we go over, I don't. I could care less. So, Okay, sure. Well, that's fine. Yeah, I mean, just really... I'm I'm pretty comfortable with uh, just about anything, really, so whatever works for you. Good, and, and I'm sort of a naturally, just a little insight into my editing process, I'm sort of a naturally mumbly person, and I will uh, oftentimes ask a question, and it takes me, you know, eight sentences to ask something that could be answered, you know, asked in one sentence, and during the editing process, I will snip all that out, and uh, sometimes my questions get very short and to the point uh, uh, when when the listener hears them, and I sound very smart and erudite, and, uh, and you may not hear that side of me. I may ask these long, rambling questions that go around the block a few times before <laughs> I get to the point, so. Well, that's fun. I'd prefer to have a good a good conversation as opposed to tell us how you got involved in this sort of thing. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's so many softball questions out there, and if if you haven't figured that already, I like to try and dig into these subjects and really be unconventional as opposed to you know softball back and forth all day. You know, I like that about your interview style. It's a conversation. You're not asking well, bullshit questions. Yeah, and I and I say this, and I've said this more than once, and, and it's a truism that uh, I'm a lousy interviewer and a good conversationalist. So uh, there's no reason to do the thing that I'm lousy at. Well, I think a good interviewer is a good conversationalist, so how's that? Bat it right back at you. Good, good, because yeah, I, I usually write down all these questions and then, you know, like get totally sidetracked. Um, uh, and by the way, Mike, real quick, before we jump back into things, you know, I'm going to be doing a podcast soon also. Would you be willing to come on as my guest sometime as well? Um, sure, ab- happily, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, I'd, love, and, um, I'd love to dig into this with you some cause, more. Because my, I don't know, like, uh, yeah, I'll send you, have you looked, there's a, on, on my site there's a, there's a timeline, have you looked at that? I have not, no. Okay, because, um, yeah, I don't know quite, and I'm very cautious I'm going to edit this out probably, and I'm, this is mm-hmm. sort of me speaking from the heart here. Like, I don't know what is going on. Like, I'm, like, completely, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, there, here's, like, exactly what I'm trying to say. Like, I'm the mumbly guy that, like, it's like I have no idea what is is uh, at the root of all this and what I've intersected with. Um, mm-hmm. But... Uh, you know, it's it can be very subtle at times, and it also can be pretty profound at times. Um, oh yeah, I'm, I'm kind of uh, and and uh, and it was actually doing the blog that uh, you know I was kind of I don't know what the term denial or something like that, and, and the act of doing the blog. You know, when I got to about a hundred posts of my own personal experiences that you know were all bizarre, I kind of had to scratch my head and go like, oh, I guess there is something here. And it mm-hmm. wasn't till I could scroll back and and, and reread my own stuff. That I came to the um, 
you, you, you like look at my earlier posts or you know, even my present posts you can you can sense there's like a like a existential angst you know there's this anxiety that sort of permeates them because i i can't quite figure out what it is that in uh, and it's not a peaceful thing i will add that's boy i'm i'm, <laughs> I'm very interested in this i'm going to have to go back and, and and scour your blog because the thing is is that you know i think that if if everyone looked i mean you know sometimes there's there's the argument that could be made that oh well you're just looking for weird shit you know but but i think that if you dig deep enough into uh you know anyone's personal experiences you will find you know uh encounters or that, that or, they met or, the wizard in their backyard the wizard yeah you know that's going to become like a uh God, that's so good. That, that that's such a good example. That's that's going to become a colloquialism unto itself. You know, we're all looking for that wizard in our backyard. That that experience alone. I mean, again, you know, relating that to Carl Jung and all this. You know, that that is the culmination of 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 exactly what I'm talking about. The the strange, the mystical, the unusual that is present in everyone's life. You know, and that for one person, you know, I, I see myself doing this again. You know, when we started the conversation, man. You know, I'm thinking, you know, well, I'll think back and I won't think anything's happened. And then people ask me about something specific, like Bill Burns asking about that dream, which, again, I think it was just a dream. But nonetheless, he said, but that's so strange that someone young like you would have a vivid nightmare about a man being taken. It's almost like, you know, I was a third party witnessing an actual, you know, experience. Some, maybe somebody else's experience. It was very strange. But, and, you know, and we dig into it and we see that most people have had these things and they often just discount it or kind of, you know, Shrug it off as happenstance, you know. And and you did the exact thing, like you shrugged it off as happenstance in the sense that you said, "Oh no, no, I haven't had any you know these experiences." And I said, "What about synchronicity?" And you said, "Oh yeah, I've had a lot of synchronicity." <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, and why is that any different than I mean a paranormal experience? It doesn't you know it doesn't need a you know it doesn't need a guy in a big pointy blue hat and a long beard in the backyard to make it a paranormal we, experience. We don't need the wizard in the bar- backyard to have a paranormal experience. But yes, if we want to consider synchronicity parallel, and it's gotten to the point, and I have to say this, and you might want to use this in the interview too. Brad Steiger and I, we were going back and forth, and um, <clears throat> actually I brought up that book of his, The Seed, and uh, specifically because I'd gone through a period about a year ago. I was really depressed. Uh, I might have gone through a breakup or something. Something was bugging me, and um, and I have a tremendous collection of, of old you know paperback novels and things from the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and then some newer books also, courtesy of a lot of publishers who send me things because they like the reviews that I write, you know, and I try not to always just, you know, when it comes to softballing, I try not to always give a good review. I mean, if a book is, is poorly written or if a book is just, you know, crap, I'm not going to tell you, oh, this is great, you got to go get it, you know. You know, sometimes, you know, you'll find books that, you know, smaller publishers like this today will put out and everything, and there are typos and things like that. But 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 if the wisdom is really good, if the knowledge contained therein is important and of substance and useful not only to people but maybe even just entertaining, uh, you know, that book, you know, it's going to get a good review because it genuinely is a good book, you know. There are a lot of things that, that, that make a book good or not, and um, I've found consistently with, with books by Brad Steiger that when I pick those up, in addition to being masterfully written, and I'm not just trying to compliment the guy because, I mean, I am, I am his friend, you know, and uh, I don't feel like with Brad that, you know, I have to prove anything because, you know, we correspond quite frequently, you know, and, and, and when we have a mutual appreciation for one another. I mean, I do have an appreciation for him as a researcher, you know, who years before me, he was in his teenagers, uh, teenage years when he started contributing to the same sorts of articles uh, or, or magazines that I did, Fate Magazine and the like. Uh, you know, he was he was corresponding when he was a young man with guys who were the big daddies in the field at the time, Ivan Sanderson, uh, Bernard Huevelins, you know, people like this. 
Um, and and now Brad is, you know, he's worked his entire life to become that guy himself. And, and above all, I think he is. Uh, but by the same token, I'll, I'll pick up a book that Brad wrote 20, 30 years ago and find incredible relevance to what I am experiencing in my life at a given time or, or how I feel about things, you know, whether it be just, I mean, you know, my own little inner uh, fears uh, to, to, you know, struggling with trying to understand this strange phenomenon. And, and oftentimes you know. in these older books, you know, you think that like, you know, there's like a continuum, right? And like the newer books are where like the higher thought is and, and where the more complex, you know, ideas are. And I, I, I don't think that's so. I think it's almost the opposite. Oh, no. yeah, we're, it we're, is the opposite. Yeah, we're, is- we're like all the questions that need to be pondered have already been pondered beautifully in, in some of the older books. I just uh, think you know, of Raymond Fowler uh, and his analysis of the phenomena is so spot on. Mm-hmm. As well as far-reaching, as well as open-minded, as well as you know his skills at speculation, and I and uh, you know other people are doing that uh, now, but they're basically just retracing steps that he's already taken. I'll tell you who before we get into owls here in a second. I'll tell you who's blown my mind uh, with his writing. I've mentioned Ivan Sanderson and of course Brad Seiger, who's a personal friend. Um, Whitley Strieber. Oh, I was going to finish your sentence for you. Keep going. Yeah, I figure out there's some synchronicity for you. You know, great minds, all that stuff. I I love that because, you know, there's the expression, great minds think alike. And Lauren Coleman came and posted at the Grayleon Report about a a month ago. He and I had been ruminating on the same thought there for a while. And all he posted was a link to his article and said, great minds and all that. (laughs) So, you know, Lauren's another one that, you know, I've probably learned more about writing from than anybody. But uh, I love that guy. But um, anywho, uh, when, when it comes to Whitley Strieber, uh, if you read Communion, people... Communion is now, uh, it was published in 1986, mm-hmm. and so what does that make it, it'll be uh, 25 Is it an antique yet? Is it an antique yet? No. <laughs> yeah, it's like 25 years old, so... Yeah, it's a quarter of a century, and you that, know. That of... book is, is like, a, is like a, a, you know, it's almost a wash in speculation because he doesn't mm-hmm. have an answer. Exactly, which I love about that book. That is the most important facet to be gleaned from that book is that we know so little and you read that book. See, it's funny because it, it's such a stark contradiction. That book, I'm not saying that Whitley contradicts himself. I think Whitley's right on the right path. I think everyone who reads that takes more from that book than, than what Whitley, Whitley alludes to things. But Whit's very careful not to say this is what I think it is. There's one passage in the book that I literally ended up transcribing and putting in a word pad uh, on my computer so that I could reference it. Again and again, because he, he goes through this process at one point where he's ruminating over what these beings might be. And he's, he, you know, it's so funny because, you know, there have been all these theories that have come, over, come out over the years. And even though that book, Communion, set the precedent for abduction research and what we took to be, you know, UFO abduction and, and really greater ufology in general – for the next, well, you know, like you said, 25 years, that book was a, you know, was groundbreaking, and it set a new precedent after its publication. But you read the book, and you see where Whit's thought processes were going, and it's not what people inferred from having actually read it themselves. You know, uh, everybody seemed to take this extraterrestrial approach to things, and that he was being taken aboard a spaceship by aliens. Whit goes through every theory 
interdimensional, that these might be some sort of crypto-terrestrial you know, insect beings that are more intelligent than we are because they are older than we are, but that they fear us because of our capacity to grow and, and, and develop in ways more quickly and more roundly than they would. And, you know, I mean, he, he goes through all these theories without committing to any of them. I think that's important sometimes. You know, a lot of people will criticize, uh, you know, me or Nick Redfern, you know, because in his book, Final Events, you know, he puts forth the idea, uh, you know, that the Collins elite, uh, this this group that, you know, supposedly operated under the CIA and, and maybe still does, uh, you know, this this idea that they felt that, uh, you know, aliens are some sort of demonic presence. Nick doesn't give himself to that theory. Almost hilarious. But either way, uh, you know, Nick doesn't give himself to these opinions. And one of these reviewers wrote that, you know, it's really sad when, when you know, the, the author doesn't believe what he's writing well enough to commit to, the, to, to the, the theory that he's putting forth himself. And I thought, well, what good journalist is so biased that they commit to belief in order to sell their product? Shouldn't they be unbiased and present these are just the facts? And that's exactly what Nick does. Whitley did that also with communion. You know, he says, look, I don't know. I don't presume to know, but this is what I've speculated, and I'm going to tell you about my experiences and it's so funny because I think so much has been inferred from reading books like Communion, uh, you know, about the greater mystery of ufology, which probably has more to do with people's interpretations of Witt's book, not what he was trying to actually say in the book. Absolutely, yeah, and and uh, and even today he still stands as a, uh, and I follow him very closely. I mean, he still keeps that open-minded thing. He still refuses to give it an answer. He'll speculate, and and sometimes, um, and I've followed his thought process over the decades now, and you know he'll he'll sort of ebb and flow in his speculations. But he he will not be pinned down. You know, he he uses the term the visitors. He will not use the term ETs uh, or aliens. He will constantly use the term the visitors, uh, and more out of just a defiance of being pigeonholed. Yeah, good for him. Good for him on that. You know, I think that, that, that there's this great video clip. People, you can get on, you know, uh, YouTube and, and, and look this up. Whit, I think one of his earliest, if not maybe his first appearance on the Larry King show back in the 80s. Uh, Larry's sitting there, he says, so Whit, you said that you've been, you've been abducted by aliens from outer space. And, and Whit, uh, you know, at the time, you know, he had a mustache and, and he wasn't the speaker that he is today. You know, he wasn't as comfortable in his own shoes, it looks like in this video as he is today, and he and he's trying to be reasonable, and he's you know he's very almost slow and measured in the way that he addresses these subjects. You could tell, I mean, that you know this was really the although he'd written some some successful novels before that, Communion had been a game changer in his own life, and you could tell he was trying very carefully to address these subjects because they were so new to him as well as to everyone else. And when Larry King says to him, you know, you believe you've been abducted by aliens. Uh, Whitley just goes, well, you know, I have never said that. Everyone else has tried to say that. And he keeps coming back in his conversation, you know, that, you know, I don't understand why I am considered an unreasonable person, you know, based on people's perceptions of what I've discussed. You know, I'm not saying, I don't know that these things are even physical. You know, it could be something else. And over the years, he's put that idea out there more and more. But I, I love that, you know, even in those early interviews, he was quick to point out, he says, I never said these things were extraterrestrial. Not at all. But everyone else seems to think that. <laughs> Yeah, very much so, and he's and he's stood by that over the years. Yeah, so yeah, yeah so and, I, and also him. he's a he's a very so Whitley Strieber um, is uh, you know on this grand checklist of things that show up. Uh, Whitley Strieber has had uh, what amounts to the classic alien abduction, even though let's say a visitor abduction or the visitor interaction. He's the had, visitors. Yeah, exactly. He's had the government interference. 
you know, the, the, what amounts to the military abduction, the MyLab as it's referred to. He oh, yeah. has had in memories of like a childhood initiation process that he wrote about in a book called The Secret School. Yes. He's had his uncle Streber, I can't remember what his first name is, like Colonel Streber, was supposedly handled the Roswell wreckage at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and spoke to him directly about it. So, like, that's an odd connection right there that he, you know, his his uh, his family lineage goes right to the quintessential piece of UFO mythology, the Roswell crash. Mm-hmm. He has uh, – he was a student in the Gurdjieff Society, and I want to be careful how to say this because I'm sort of speaking out of my own uh, knowledge base in a way. But he's had sort of an initiation process into, uh, like, esoteric arts. Right. He wrote a book called The Key – which, when you get right down to it, you know, he says, yes. you know, quite. Have you read that book? No, I'm looking at the cover of the key right now. I don't have it here, but I was looking at it on Amazon, anticipating that you would go in that direction. That, that I think is Whitley's encounter with the wizard in the backyard. That is exactly. And now this gets right into channeling. If you read that book, he says, uh, in no uncertain terms, that it's a, a guy that came into his hotel room. Uh, and then, you know, sat and talked with him for some hours. Yeah, he said we, this guy showed up in the middle of the night, too, right? Exactly. I mean, was... Like, knock, knock, knock. He woke him up out of a sleep. He he gets up uh, in a little bit of a flurry, opens the door. This guy scurries into the room, and immediately they, they start into this very intense conversation, which he takes notes in a yellow legal pad. Now, uh, you read the book, and, and I said earlier that I went through a phase where I read tons of channeled material. You read the book, it reads exactly like the channeled books that were, oh. that were so much a part of the uh, there ah. was a, there was an onslaught of channeled books in the mid 90s the mid to late mm. 90s uh, like a statistical blip in the publishing realm and that book in my opinion fits right into that i've actually asked him about that at one point and he and he just kind of dismissed he said no 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 the person was really in the room and that's right back to the you know like is the is the bigfoot hunter hunting a hairy ape in the woods or is the bigfoot hunter hunting uh like a, a metaphoric denizen from another reality it doesn't matter well, yeah you know yeah like, and th- these individuals obviously represent something else you know there's this idea that nick uh, redfern and i've talked about a little bit um i actually wrote a column that it hasn't gone to print yet but I, I can give you the title i call it the men from nowhere and it's this column that's going to be in ufo magazine uh, upcoming and it talks about basically very kind of loosely the idea that uh, if indeed we were to assume something like, for instance, that you know UFO occupants are from here on Earth, that might explain some of these clandestine encounters with these strange individuals that just kind of pop up out of nowhere. They don't seem quite human. They seem to have a little insight that goes beyond what you know the average person uh, has or maybe has not. Uh, the key by Whitley Strieber, that that is one of those books. You know that that that, in, that involves an encounter with what what I would call one of these men from nowhere. Exactly. You know, and, yeah, and, and, and I think he would agree to that to, that assessment. Yeah, and so this has been a kind of an idea. Nick Redfern and I've been pitching back and forth over the last uh, couple of weeks via email and things. So uh, hopefully there'll be some more about that in the future. But yeah, and I'm fascinated by that experience. You know, because you know, whereas you look at it, you know, from and, I, and rightly so, I think, you know, from the perspective of God, this reads like almost like a channeled manuscript. I know that you aren't maybe asserting that that Whitley imagined this entire thing, but but you know, whether the person is sitting in the room with you dictating, or you're getting what they call what I like to joke uh, jokingly call a download from the mother throne to a uh, quote Ricky Skaggs 
Uh, because musicians talk about this also, you know. Absolutely, music- the creative process is mm-hmm. is is a uh, a ritual act. The creative process has the ability to, it, to unlock doors. You know, like they we're talking yeah. about the book, the key, and and then also that Whitley Strieber. I think one of the things that has worked against him, in a in a way, as far as his public perception, is the fact that he is such a good writer that that it makes his stories seem. Uh, they they feel embellished sometimes because the the the, the skill of him as a writer. Where um, if it was a first person narrative, uh, mm-hmm. like um, Travis Walton, his first person narrative of the of his abduction account, um, you know, reads like, you know, it does. It is not the it is not coming from the hand of a skilled writer. It's very right. passionate, and he's getting his point across. But um, they, they read as two separate narratives, you know, side mm-hmm. by side. And also, I will also add that. Um, uh, Travis Walton is very shy to say to to name the you know like you know he, to uh, to say where these entities may have come from. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. And you see, I got in trouble uh, postulating different theories about uh, you know the uh, the origin of of UFO craft and, and occupants, and specifically with regard to uh, Walton's experience. Um, what we know about Travis Walton was that uh that uh first of all first thing that we have to point out about Travis Walton is that uh what the film Fire in the Sky portrayed about his uh encounter is a, is vastly different from what he actually described. Absolutely and and I will jump in and say one of the things that he as a uh like presently a spokesman of his own story he does say that the that the interactions with the police and the others and the other people who were suspected of his murder, basically, he says that is rather accurate. Okay, yeah, yeah, and I understood that that yeah was was fairly accurate. I know uh, his discovery at a gas station on a rainy night, you know, and he's stark naked and all this stuff that was shown in the film. I don't think that was quite accurate. I think that he remembered coming to, if I remember correctly, fully clothed by the side of the the, the highway. You know, he saw the craft hovering above him, and he said that the thing kind of kind of wobbled and then just took off. You know, and. And so I think he did walk to a gas station maybe and call. But, you know, Hollywood does that. You know, Hollywood, they tried uh, – the first script, as I understand, of Walton's story was more closely what he had described. And they said, this is boring. Nobody's going to find this interesting. And so they make this horrific encounter with these little, you know, diminutive they – they're hardly gob, uh, uh, aliens. They're more like goblins or, or something, you know, in, in that film. And they um, – and they're, yeah, they're doing all this horrific stuff to him in this – in this terrifying environment with dead bodies and things, you know, and all this kind of weird organic crap, you know, that book scared the crap out of me when I was a kid, or not the book, the uh, the the film did, and and I I reconciled later after studying the Walton case more and more myself and learned the spin that Hollywood and the media in general will put on this kind of phenomenon, and it becomes something that I think that becomes by virtue of people trying to write horror you know, novels and horror. Uh, you know, screenplays around them, uh, you know, it becomes something that people become terrified of, and then they do one of two things. They misinterpret it as something dangerous, okay, or they or they become so terrified of it themselves that they, that they try and discount it. I've known a lot of people who are so outright dismissive of claims of, you know, encounters with, you know, strange hairy hominids or... or, you know, UFO abduction and things like that. They'll just laugh all night if you try and talk about it seriously. But if you probe a little deeper and you get to know that person well enough, there have been so many instances where I've found that a person discounted these kinds of things because they, you know, it comes out after the fact, okay, you know, I've actually had dreams 
or I've just been terrified by that, or I went when I was a child saw a film and that's just scared me my whole life. And so I cope with that fear by just being silly and dismissive of it. You know, so there's almost a disservice that's done with with regard to uh, you know the way that films portray these things. Now, an exception might be uh, the film Communion that you know had Christopher Walken. Obviously, they took some liberties with with the story, but you know they, they, at least they they represented what Whitley Strieber was trying to communicate uh, fairly well. Yeah, and, and and I've and Whitley is quite open the, about the fact, and both him and his wife are open about the fact that they did not like that movie. Um, yeah, and, I understand that they wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, with this is like once again, this is the the, the lousy interviewer, good conversationalist. Um, we've been uh, going at it for just about two hours. How are you holding up? I'm holding up well, and I know that you wanted to get to owls. So I mean, you know, <laughs> my my. Uh, so great. Let's let's know. talk about owls. Okay. Excellent. Go ahead. No, I'll, I'll let you lead. <laughs> oh, what are your th- what's what's your thoughts about owls? Uh, you, well, okay. Let's just jump into it immediately from the Fortean perspective. If you look through, uh, you know, Fortean literature, you will see that the prevalence of owls maybe among, um, may, maybe more than any other animal in in Fortiana, uh, with the exception probably of black dogs and large cats. Uh, the owl probably is, you know, the most prevalent of all creatures of the animal kingdom with regard to, you know, reports of the paranormal. Um, we've been talking about Willie Strieber. I mean, he described it during, uh, or rather, what what appeared to be, uh, you know, the morning after some of his early abduction scenarios that took place at the cabin in New York. He described seeing an owl sitting at the window, staring at him intently with those large eyes. And the, the film The Fourth Kind, I think, picked up on that. A lot of films have actually done this, uh, you know, and I'd even toyed, uh, you know, years ago with uh, a screenplay uh, for a film that would deal with alien abduction where a person kept having synchronistic encounters with owls and that there would be a lot of, you know, kind of symbology regarding the large black eyes of, a, you know, of, a, of, a, of an owl, you know, staring at somebody. That seemed to be kind of what the uh, the owl represented to the abductees, you know, Whitley Strieber and others, is that, you know, the, the, the eyes, the penetrating eyes, and also this being a creature, you know, a nocturnal bird, you know, of prey. Um, it's revered for its strength and for its skill and for its, you know, dexterity and everything with, with capturing and killing its prey. As well and as they, seeing in the dark. I mean, which is kind well. of a metaphor in its own, like seeing through the darkness. This sort of, yes, exactly. Um, and, and, and incidentally, in fact, I don't think it's any coincidence that, you know, there's been a long-held tradition that, uh, you know, that at the presence of an owl like that hooting, you know, outside someone's window sometimes denotes, you know, that someone's going to die. I think that that's a superstition. I've been in, you know, close proximity to a lot of owls over my years and nobody's died, you know, thank goodness. Knock on wood. But, yep. <laughs> but the thing is, is that, you know, so there's that folkloric attachment to the owls. If we want to look at cryptozoological Reports. There is the Owl Man of England, and although some of those reports seem to be fairly dubious, you can't deny the fact that you know the conventional reports of the winged entity seen in Point Pleasant that was described as the Mothman resembled more closely a large owl, um, and and you know that there there are probably other aspects of of the owl. I think that uh, you know that that can be uh, you know interpreted you know in terms of phenomenology and strangeness. Um, I know that uh, the controversial. Radio host Alex Jones uh, made a documentary uh, a few years ago where he infiltrated Bohemian Grove. Oh, in the big giant, you know, owl Moloch. Exactly. The name of the owl. Yeah, exactly. See that owl, uh, just like in in uh, the uh, the classic film uh, Clash of the Titans. You know, there was little uh, was it Archimedes, the little owl. Uh huh. Archimedes is always seen with an owl. Yeah. 
Yes, exactly. Yeah, and, and that's the thing is. Oh that, no! You know, wait a minute. I'm, I'm not sure the the name of the of the. Uh... Oh, keep going. I'll, I'll 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 figure this out in a second. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't think. Yeah, it's not Archimedes. I'm trying to think. Uh, the, the the name of the little owl in the film. This is Mike. I'm chiming in during the editing process. I just wanted to say that Archimedes is a Greek mathematician from around 250 BC. Uh, I, I use the internet. I looked up these uh, little facts, and uh, Archimedes is, in fact, also the name of an owl, and that is the name of the owl from the 1963 movie *Sword in the Stone*, which is a Disney animation, which is a reinterpretation of the Arthurian legend, which has Archimedes the owl featured as Merlin's pet. Uh, Merlin being the wizard, the wizard with the big blue tall hat and the long beard. Uh, so we somehow managed to uh, sync together two individual talking points from earlier on in the interview. Uh, the wizard and the owl, whatever that means. And I also mentioned the name Lilitu, which is a Mesopotamian demon. And she's a female figure, and she is often seen uh, with an owl as an escort, or an owl in her... Uh, the engravings of her. This uh, this is interesting because Micah, you know, straight up says, "Hmm, that sounds like Lilith," and Lilith is the name of an ancient Jewish god or goddess, uh, and she is often seen with an owl. And I will also add that Lilith is the name of the vampire character in Whitley Strieber's book that he wrote before Communion, a book titled The Hunger. So um, there you go. Whatever all this means, uh, just uh, clarifying and making things murkier. Back to the interview. That was so. It's Lilitu, L-I-L-I-T-U, is, oh, okay. is the uh, uh, ancient, uh, and I think that might be even Egyptian, mm-hmm. which is uh, anyway. That's interesting, actually, Lilitu, because that you know, in terms of. Uh the etymology there, it almost reminds me of Lilith or, or something like that. I don't know if there's and, a connection. And Lilith was the name of the vampire in Whitley Strieber's novel, The Hunger. And, talk, you know, talk about an animal that, like, you know, is, is the denizen of the night, you know, like exactly. the, the vampire itself. We could play Seven Degrees of Sasquatch and probably make connections all day. I don't, I don't know if there are any, but that's interesting to me. And uh, I would hope you'd think the same thing. But uh, I think that uh, what I'm getting at with regard to Bohemian Grove and, and the little owl helping Perseus and things like that is the the, the idea that uh, the owl represents wisdom or knowledge, often esoteric knowledge, and the owl sometimes is used uh, as kind of an emblem or a totem symbolically for those kinds of things, uh, you know, by various organizations and, and and whatnot. So, so yeah, you know, when you look through reports of the esoteric, uh, you know, they're rife with instances where the owl plays some sort of a central role. In strangeness. Now, if you don't mind me asking, you you said that you've you know had numerous instances pertaining to owls yourself. I mean, would you be interested in, in delving into that? Uh, any at sure, all? sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I've cataloged pretty much all of them on the blog. I've seen a lot of owls, and, and it's funny because I live in a place. I live right near Grand Teton National Park, um, in a very uh, remote part of uh, on the Idaho Wyoming border. So there are. I actually do live in a place with a lot of owls. So I have that going for me. So if I'm going to see them, I'm going to see them here near my house. But um, I was seeing owls in. Oh, what's a good story? I mean, I've got so many owl stories. Uh, so I, I'll tell you two. One of them, uh, sure. I was there was a friend of mine. 
oh god this is this this story like links up to so many other stories so we went out into the mountains we went camping for a single night uh it was it would kind of amounted to a first date with this woman and Mm -hmm. uh the sun was setting and we were having this conversation and and i was uh i I work as a professional camper uh, as my other job uh, for an outdoor school so cool so I'm very much at home, like sitting in the mountains, yeah. you know, like, so I'm making dinner on a little teeny camp stove and we're sitting on a rock and, uh, the sun is setting and we're talking and we ha- we're having this conversation and I realized the conversation was getting really deep and it was, I was at this moment where I was like, good grief, this person is, this person is really deep and insightful and, and smart and and wise in a way that I did not expect, and it kind of came to me as a, in a flash, like wow, oh my gosh, I didn't expect that. And then at that moment, an owl appeared. Oh really? And then two owls appeared, and wow. three owls appeared. So we sat there eating dinner while three owls, and I think they were barred owls, which are a pretty big owl, uh, mm-hmm. were flying above us, landing on trees nearby, looking down on us, flying above us, and it just went all the way until we laid down. It was beautiful weather. We laid down under the stars and on our backs, and you know, this is uh, the you know most beautiful part of the Rocky Mountains where I was camping. High elevation, magical, clear sky, tons of stars, and we would lay down, and the owls would swoop down. We both had the experience of the owls swooping down and blocking out the stars, it f- and they're very quiet when they fly. So, oh, yeah. so it, I don't know whether it was, they were five feet above us or five inches above us, but it was, it was, it just went on and on and on. So, uh, we have this amazing night camping the next day. Um, you know, we walk back in, we just spend a single night out and then, you know, we said, Hey, uh, let's do that again. And I said, yeah, I do it all the time. I go out for one night all the time. Uh, and she says, great. And so like less than a week later, we go out again, camp in a completely different part of the Tetons. It's sun is setting, and at this this time it's cold. It's not quite as pretty in evening, and uh, so we say, "Oh, let's walk to the top of that hill because uh, we'll get a little warmer. We'll get we'll get warmed up walking up the hill, and then we, you know so we won't be chilled when we climb into the sleeping bags." And she goes, "Great!" So we walk up this hill, stand on top of the hill, and an owl appears, and then two owls appear, <laughs> and then three owls appear, and we and this is like four days later. So three owls, and I am not kidding, they land next to us and stand next to us within uh, 15 feet and stare at us and land on branches and then fly around. It was, I mean, it was mystical once. To have it happen again just like uh, threw me into a, like an existential tizzy that's hard to define. I was like, you know, what is the meaning of this? Um, and <laughs> later, this woman's name is Kristen, I kind of asked, like, Kristen, do you remember what we were talking about when those first owls appeared? And she said, oh, yes, I remember exactly. And, she, and I said, what was it? And she said, it was right at the moment where I was trying to define the deepest meaning of what God meant to me. And that's when the first owl appeared. Hmm. Which is kind of like, you know, I mean, whatever, we weren't talking about Bill Murray movies, let me put it that way. Um, and I have a lot of stories that fall into exactly that, uh, sometimes five owls. <laughs> Uh, really? Yeah. So, um, so that's happened to me a lot. And I've talked to like wildlife bi- biologists who spend all their time out in the summer. And I've said, has this ever happened to you? And they look at me like, I'm like insane. And they're like, no, no, that's impossible. It can't happen. I'm like, yeah, it's happened to me more than once here. I'll, I'll fill you in one more story. Sure. In, uh, I don't know if I've shared this online in October of 2009, I had what amounted to the most intensely synchronistic, bizarro, 
uh, high strangeness. It was just one episode after another, after another, after another. And it started on the second and it continued to Halloween. Uh, and, and I documented all this stuff and, and I, I had no way to make sense of it. If I tried to do a blog posting, the thing would look like a novel. So I, I realized what I would do is over a year later, I did a, a, a podcast on it where I spoke into the microphone and then I edited a few little interviews on some key people that were part of that uh, month that I interacted with, uh, including some psychics and, and a woman who claimed to have seen 50 owls all in one spot. Uh, I'm going through the process of editing this thing. The, the whole podcast turns out to be about two hours long. So it took me a few nights to do it. And so I would I ride back and forth into the little town that I live in here. And on the way home, I hadn't seen owls, I realized, in a year. I hadn't seen any owls at all. And I actually made a, a proclamation to the universe at one point that I was not going to pay attention to some owl you know, that I saw off in the distance in a tree. Right, you know, you're walking down a mountain path, and there's an owl sitting in a tree. That doesn't count. Right. Yeah. I, I basically said the owl has to cross my path, mm-hmm. and I, I declared that out loud. And and that was actually during that month of October of 2008. And like within 48 hours, I was riding my bike, um, and an owl flew down, and uh, you know made that sort of uh, arcing swoop, you know, where they come down and then and then gain elevation again. And that that lowest point was like right at my eye level. So. I'm working on the editing of this podcast, two-hour-long podcast, I'm, and I'm thinking about it. I'm riding my bike. I'm coming home. I've been uh, was in, one time I was went to town, and another time I was visiting a friend. Over the two nights that I edited it, and I was on my way home, thinking like, when I get home, I'm going to edit this thing. I'm going to work on this. And sure enough, as I had that thought, an owl swooped down in front of me. <laughs> and this is like in this this podcast. I mean, this thing gets I don't know what uh, what the correct vocabulary word is, um, mushy. I, you know, so this this podcast got really introspective and kind of sort of maudlin in its self-reflection. And then the next night, as I was riding my bike home, sun was setting. I was thinking like, oh, I'm going to like work on this podcast. Another owl swooped down and crossed my path. So it happened again. It happened twice. Gosh. On the two nights that I edited it. Both nights, like like basically as I was on my way home. And there's like, I don't know how to say it. You know, like these experiences are so intensely personal. Mm-hmm. that the act of trying to describe it accurately, to try to convey the full relevance, uh, almost doesn't work because the, the poor listener, the, their eyes will glaze over by the time I you know, go to the end, and then it connects to this, and it connects to this, and, and oh, it's yeah. important for these three reasons, and then I didn't realize it until later, but it was important for this. and um, so, so I have no idea what it means. And I could just go on and on and on. I could fill like you know, two hours of owl stories, I'm quite certain. Yeah, and it's naturally going to mean, you know, one thing to one person and then, you know, to somebody else, maybe something completely different. So, you know, <laughs> uh, and then I, uh, I, I can sympathize with you there. You know, it's, it's, it's funny because we find meaning in something ourselves, but everyone else, you know, you try and relate that experience to them and they're like, okay, you're weird. You know, it's kind of funny. Watch very, well, uh, weird maybe like, you know, I'm out of the statistical norm, let me put it that way. Where, But on the same sense, you know, we sit at night and watch television and the television shows are full of, you know, paranormal experiences. I mean, every, it seems like every single movie and every single television show has like a metaphoric little thing, even if it's a, if it's a completely dry plot that doesn't have anything to do with aliens and spaceships and, yes. and, 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 and prophetic dreams. There will... Mm-hmm oftentimes be plot points that the author in the creative process will put in very much as a metaphor or as yeah. a, as a, an analogy to something uh, in ancient mythology or, or mm-hmm. as, a, as a grand icon of the human experience. 
Yeah, which it's funny because that reminds me very much of something that happened to me just the other night. I was hanging out with my ex-girlfriend, who's very insightful. Uh, she was an art major, and so she and, and a very fantastic painter. And so she, uh, you know, I find has uh, you know a not not a weird. She's very normal <laughs> compared to someone like me, you know, who's thinking abstractly all the time. Uh, you know, trying to literally, you know, because I think that you know, and that's why I'm fascinated with art and poetry and music and things like that, is because I think that sometimes. You know, the essence of the human experience, you know, we could spend our whole lives trying to write essays that look technically at things and try and describe and understand and, and, and find meaning in things, whereas maybe a song or a poem or a piece of art will convey that feeling, you know, on a sublime level or in a sublime kind of way that, you know, all the talking won't do, which is funny for me. I think I'm so fascinated by it because I'm someone who tends to over-talk things. I will look at something. I will pour over an idea in my mind over and over and over again and I'll try and come to and I do come to new realizations and understandings of things and I think that that's why you know maybe you know if 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 anyone's interested in interviewing me you know uh, you know for their podcasts and things you know uh, it's it's not because I'm a guy who's kind of interested in UFOs I mean those kinds of people are a dime a dozen I keep finding that people want me to come on their podcast because you know of the unconventional things that I say you know people are looking for something a little different and I think that you know it does it's not something about oh well you know I have good ideas I think it's that you know when people are looking for something different you know if they find that somebody else is doing that they gravitate towards that person so anywho I was uh, hanging out with my ex the other night, and being an art major, you know, she has a uh, an understanding of symbology and the abstract ways of looking at things. You know, and we'll end up talking about, you know, God, everything from Charles Fort to, to you know, Ezra Pound. And at one point, she we were walking back to our cars and everything, and she said, you're being so dramatic, you know, just kind of chiding me a little bit and everything. And I remember going home and thinking about that. Why am I? I can tend to be a very over-the-top kind of personality with things, and I think that the reason why is because I myself feel that, you know, that culture permeates everything around us, you know, whether it be going and seeing a film or reading, you know, uh, a novel or looking at a piece of art, and it's like what you're talking about. Sometimes the writers, you know, intentionally put that in there. Sometimes, like, you know, if we if we look at, uh, you know, Moby Dick, I think it was, you know, asserted that Melville uh, didn't know or didn't recognize the symbolic aspect that was that was present in in that novel as he was writing it he he wasn't aware of the fact that you know Ahab's hunt for the white whale you know represented man's ongoing struggle with nature and and when that was brought out when that was proposed by some of the early reviewers uh and critical analysis you know begin to suggest well you know that that was pretty deep uh, you know, he he said, well, you know, I didn't see it like that when I was writing it. I was just writing a novel. And so then the theory was put forth that, well, see, you may not have realized you meant that. It was subconscious, you know. Absolutely. And, and, and he seemed to be more accepting of the subconscious aspect, which in a way is kind of silly that, you know, even though he said I didn't mean it as a symbol, you know, or, or in a symbolic way, I mean, um, you know, it, it was nonetheless asserted that, you know, you may not have been aware of it, but it was. But in truth. That very likely is a scenario that not only occurred with regard to the authorship of Moby Dick. I mean, I think it occurs all the time that there people will see a story that someone has written and there will be a, a symbolic struggle that occurs, uh, you know, an underlying truism, you know, or an underlying element that is consistent in cultures. You know, like for example, you know, I've, <clears throat> I've got this thing I call the Fortean folk devil premise. And, you know, I've been working off and on on a, uh, a, a, 
you know, manuscript or, you know, some form of, you know, something to be published, you know, that deals with this. I think that, you know, if you look at 14 phenomenon and especially, you know, reports of strange beings and creatures, there are not only, you know, reports that are riddled with what we talked about that are often dismissed in cryptozoological circles, these weird high strangeness kinds of things, i.e. Bigfoot disappearing or Bigfoot wearing clothes, Bigfoot speaking, Bigfoot being picked up by a UFO. People like to discount those kind of reports, but they're absolutely all over the place. By the same token, there are all these incidents where whether it be a mothman, a grinning man, a mad gasser, a leaping lout, you know, as I call them, like, uh, you know, Parak, the spring man of Prague, or the more popular uh, depiction of that kind of archetypal leaping character, a spring-heeled jack. These, these entities in Fortiana tend to appear, you know, in tandem with bad luck. There's a character that the Ogala Sioux, I believe, uh, talk about uh, in the Midwest that is uh, described as being a you know, 12 to 15 foot tall character with a stovepipe hat. They call him Walking Sam. Cryptozoologists infer that this is, you know, a cultural interpretation of what is nothing more than a Bigfoot. Uh, the uh, the natives would argue that no, I mean, this is a tall man who will, you know appears wearing a stovepipe hat and he peers in windows at night, and his presence uh, occurs uh, at the same time of you know rashes of teen suicide. We also have the Monkey Man of New Delhi that was, you know, associated with mass hysteria and things like that uh, in New Delhi, in, uh, India, several years ago. Uh, that creature was described sometimes as resembling a monkey man. Sometimes it was described as a little diminutive humanoid with a, a silver helmet and little claws on his fingers. He was able to leap great distances. So we're already seeing similarities to Spring-Heeled Jack. Some reports just described, this is very strange, a bandaged character, like a mummy or something like that. So there were different interpretations around the same time, you know, that these encounters were occurring. All of them associated with, you know, mass panic, hysteria, suicides, things like that. Uh, and the funny thing is, is that, you know, whereas, you know, this leaping, you know, character was described as being, you know, monkey-like there in New Delhi, India, when we look back at the the, 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 the research uh, regarding uh, Spring-Heeled Jack, a lot of the early reports described a bear-like creature attacking people, which you know kind of lent to the theory that there was, you know, uh, I think that there was a, uh, a a duke, or I can't remember the, the actual character, but there was a man, you know, who was kind of high society, and they'd said that he had a very sick sense of humor and had been basically terrorizing people by putting on different costumes. And, uh, you know, at first it may have been a bear or something like that. And later, you know, he began to dress in the oil skin suit with the claws and the mask that was, you know, more popularly associated with the Spring-Heeled Jack character. So, you know, these 14 folk devils, as I call them, you know, often appear in tandem with bad luck. Mothman in West Virginia, you know, the whole idea of there being a prophecy associated with the presence of that Mothman creature uh, dealt with John Keel, uh, you know, and the events that led up to the collapse of the, the Silver Bridge. So there is a cultural aspect to it that, that you know, where people, was, you know, people are kind of looking for a scapegoat, you know, and that's why I use the term folk devil. Folk devil sociologically deals with people, you know, looking for a, a group in society or an individual, whether it be the Salem, you know, witch hunts or something like that, or whether it be the Inquisition and looking for heretics, um, you know, the or, or you know, as, as the author, uh, you know, who actually first coined that term uh, was, was alluding to, you know, you know, rock bands like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones in the 1960s, these mods were the folk devils of the day. They were responsible for teenage, you know, uh, substance abuse and, and you know. Uh, Wild you know, sexual abandonment, yeah, yeah. Well, like all yeah, the all, things that, like, puritanical society would, would be so offended at. Exactly. In a sociological way, we point the finger at one another, but when there are things that happen that are just so terrible, whether it be Chernobyl or the Fukushima reactor, you know, that, you know, that, that they've been struggling with in the aftermath of those quakes in Japan, 
whether it be the collapse of the Silver Bridge, you know, teen suicides, you know, on Indian reservations and those kinds of things, I noticed that there's a consistency where when bad stuff starts going down, bad luck uh, begins to occur, uh, often you will also see the presence of some sort of a folkloric archetype, an individual, a character. I call these the Fortean folk devils. They are strange beings, whether they be a Bigfoot, a Mothman, you know, a, a leaping fiend, you know. Uh, these these characters appear in tandem with bad luck, and I think it's like, you know, that people almost have to create a... And I'm not saying that these beings, these creatures, you know, whatever they are, in various instances, are psychological manifestations. But I am saying that I think that clearly there is a tendency when strange phenomenon occurs in tandem with bad luck or, or disasters that people point the finger and they become scapegoats and hence there's this Fortean folk devil kind of thing. So that's that's my working premise right now and I'm hoping to uh, to you know finish. I've, I've actually got a few chapters written and some things like that and that's going to be a book that's going to be coming up uh, hopefully soon that people will be learning more about. Um, but but the reason I bring that up now is because like you've you know indicated whether it be we're talking about owls or or you know you know the plot lines on on primetime television programs uh, or my ex girlfriend telling me you know why are you so dramatic I think it's because we're all influenced by culture and and drama okay or stories or you know or or or, or you know semblance and and and, oh, and, and and I mean where's Joseph Campbell I mean the myth you know the myth you know doesn't come from a like an analytical look at you know how a narrative should progress in a in a non-creative process you know the myth you know wells up from the ether the myth you know rises out of you know like i mean stories get told over and over and over again but why does the myth seem to rise to the surface are you familiar with christopher knowles uh you know actually i know that name i'm christopher not knowles has a has a website called the the secret sun where he yeah. looks at the mythology in popular culture and he wrote a book called our gods wear spandex where he compares and contrasts the ancient uh, mythology of egyptian and greek and roman times with the present day pantheon of superheroes in comic books and it's fascinating and he also Hmm. has a book where he calls uh, the secret history of rock and roll uh, where he does the same thing with like the phenomena of rock and roll and how it mimics the esoteric traditions of secret societies in Egypt, Rome, and Greece as a reworking of, of those rituals that took place in almost forgotten times. Hmm. That's fascinating. You know, this is why I always come back to saying, you know, if if I am so lucky to be remembered as anything, I hope in some ways that, you know, rather than ufologist or, you know, or something, you know, I hope that people would say, uh, if not Fortean, that I'm either, you know, a folklorist or maybe a philosopher because, you know, when you begin to look at this stuff on a on a broad scale, you know, as, and, and, and this is the, the issue I take with, um, although there's importance to gathering data and collecting, you know, reports and encounters. And, and as your blog, you know, shows, I mean, you know, the experiential factor, you know, on, on an individual basis, you know, what else do we base our understanding of, the, the, of this phenomenon on? Um, I, I do like, however, when people try and probe a little deeper and take on an understanding uh, of of the phenomenon, you know, as a whole, as opposed to just you know writing books that are nothing but just gather you know report after report after report after report. Yeah, as, you know? as Nick Redfern you know says, you know we've got we, you know we we've got a lot of file cabinets full of reports, you know that we don't need more, we don't need to buy more file cabinets. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and granted, people are going to do that because I think that there are diff- there are distinctions that can be drawn between kinds of researchers. You know, there are the 
They're the, uh, you know, it's so funny because, I mean, I've heard, you know, researchers like myself uh, referred to as scavengers, despite the fact that I try and get out in the field and do a lot of my own research and things like that. And the reason why that term comes up, and it's almost used jokingly, but it's that there are some people who take, you know, the information contained in those proverbial file cabinets, and they try and understand, they try and come to new understandings based on the data that is present there, you know. And I think that that's what's important. People need to do that. You know, there are the chroniclers who gather the reports. And I think that, you know, for people like Charles Ford, even though Charles, you know, occasionally did, uh, uh, you know, assert his own opinions about things and he had some theories, I think it's natural that if you gather reports of strangeness for long enough, you will begin to form opinions about the, you know, the interrelationship between the reports that you've gathered and documented. But, uh, you know, I think that, you know, there are the chroniclers who are the primary gatherers of the information. And then there are people who are more theoretical about it, you know. And and people, and I get, this is so funny, and, but I'm, I'm very, talking about gratitude here, you know, I'm very grateful for the fact that, you know, a lot of people contact me sometimes using pseudonyms. You know, I've, I've, I've been contacted uh, many times in the last, uh, you know, several months by professors, at PhDs, you know, uh, biologists, historians, people from around the world, you know, they'll either, you know, at least in one or two instances, people have actually used, um, uh, you know, I've had people tell me that they were associated with, you know, with, with high society, royal families, things like that, God knows what, you know, and, uh, and have used, you know, some pseudonyms, you know, but have nonetheless imparted very important scientific information to me because they say, you know, in the scientific community, it's career suicide for us to, to either use our name, even give it to you, or more frequently, you know, people will contact me and say, you know, yes, you can, you can quote me, you can, you know, and I'll provide information and insight for you, but just don't use my name publicly, uh, you know, uh, and, and that's primarily, especially people here in the United States who are more open to at least letting me know their name, but, um, but I feel grateful that, you know, I have people from, from scientific circles who will contact me and they'll say, it would be suicide for me to come out and talk about these kinds of things with my peers or to publish a report on it, but, uh, but I'm interested, I realize that there is you know, importance to the research that you do, and I'm happy to advise you or send along information that I find from time to time to you because, you know, you're the kind of person who could disseminate this. It wouldn't, you know, you, you already are, you know, your career is based around this sort of thing. Yeah, you, always, you don't have a reputation because you, you, you write well, about you, esoteric subjects, yeah. You don't have a reputation at very least, you know, among academia, you know, that, that, that you know, could be tarnished by that. And that's so sad, I think, that, you know, if people want to, if people want to, you know, study this kind of thing in an academic way, people wonder why, you know, it's not taken seriously in mainstream science. It's because, you know, if, if, if a mainstream scientist tries to uh, to approach this subject matter and 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 do so logically um, and 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 maybe you know credibly uh, without being too credulous, um, the the very you know the very act of, of of you know trying to tackle this subject matter, however however seriously or skeptically they tend to do it, unless they're outright debunking it and just making fun of it, uh, people are often completely dismissed. And yeah, it is. It's academic career suicide for these individuals. And yet we wonder why we don't have a, bo- a body of, of evidence that comes from academia. While these, you know, guys like me, these know-nothing, you know, hillbillies out here in the hills, you know, even though I, you know, I, I try to carry myself and speak fairly, uh, you know, fairly uh, coherently when I'm talking about these kind of things. But they wonder why guys like me are the ones who end up gathering these kind of subjects and putting out the information. So I'm grateful that, you know, I have people from academia who say, you know, I realize my own limitations by virtue of the societal pressures that are placed upon me by virtue of my degree and my, you know, my expertise. 
But that said, keep up the good work, and we're going to continue passing along what information we find along to you. So I'm, I'm very thankful for that, and it shows me that there's a little hope for this kind of stuff <laughs> somewhere out there. Well, good, and uh, and hopefully, oh, I think that the the internet and the one of the things I've been cataloging is is people who share their first person experiences on the internet, and mm-hmm. and in a way, I'm going to call that that you know just what you said, you know, there are hope for the future in a way um, that these, you know, there's been a uh, an end run around the publishing industry. You know what I mean? Like someone can share their personal experiences without writing it in a book and finding a publisher and putting, you know, and putting it on a bookshelf in a in a bookstore where it may never get noticed. Mm-hmm. Um, people can put this stuff online right away. You know, they can say, "I had it." You know, like literally, there are websites where people are cataloging their own personal set of experiences where they can say things like, "I had a UFO abduction last night," or that would that would that would be the way it would show up in the book in a way after it had been run through the editing process, the way it shows up is people will say, I had a very unusual experience last night. Um, yeah. And so I've, that that is showing up like real time. And to me, that's very hopeful. It's, it's oh, coming yeah. through unedited and passionately, you know, not not even from the grassroots up. It's coming almost from like the the, the uh, heartfelt place in, in an individual uh, that just is, is almost, um, I don't know what to say, you know, yearning to be heard. Or, mm-hmm. or, you know, people, re- in, a, in essence, two things are happening. People are yearning to be heard, and they're reaching out for help at the same time. Absolutely. And I've dealt with that with, you know, editors myself, you know, although I've, I've had many editors who, who, you know, very graciously have spent time and worked with me, and, and, and there is something to be said about, you know, improving a manuscript. Oh, oh and uh, some, of these, some of this writing is very bad. Uh, in the sense yeah, that exactly. It's, it's poor writing, but it's good content. Exactly, and that's the thing that I think that there needs to be a distinction. And you're right; the the, one, the internet's wonderful because of that. You know, whereas good writing, unfortunately, often filters out a lot of the good content by virtue of being good writing. Uh, poor writing, but good content is is made available, like you said, in real time on the internet. And there's so much information to draw from that you know doesn't go through some sort of an editorial board. And you you see that you know yeah maybe you know uh, the new theories, so to speak, the new school. It's not as polished as it once was by any means, but the new school is getting a little bit more bizarre and abstract, and I think the reason why is because it's beginning to get to a point where people are allowed to deal with subjects that have been here and been present all along, but they aren't, they aren't you know, being uh, filtered and watered down and things like that. You know, we're getting full frontal, you know, straight-on, experiential you know, accounts from people like you and I. And, and I foresee... You know, it seems like there's this illusion. I think humankind does this. There's an illusion like we're at the end of the sidewalk, right? You know, like, oh, (laughs) now we've got all the pieces of the puzzle on the table. And I think that that even though we may, you know, pat ourselves in the back and say we're all high and mighty and we're we're capable of having open minds as we look into this, um, I I suspect this this phenomena is going to continue to be just a few steps out of our reach. Oh, gosh, Potentially forever. Um, it's not like there's a. It's not like we're going to like open the door and then find the solution and then all this phenomena will fall into place. What I suspect happening as soon as we, uh, you know, like some physicist like comes up with a a machine that can tap into another dimension and mm-hmm. you know that may be very interesting and you know it may shine a light on some of this. But I have a feeling that there will be a like a, a new set of phenomena will well up that will continue to be just out of reach oh, and it's continue all- to play the role of yeah. the of the uh, campfire story. 
It will. We'll, We're always going to have wizards in our backyard. And and while we're quoting poets, you know, although I love Shel Silverstein, you know, I don't think that we're at the end of the sidewalk just yet. Robert Frost might have told us, you know, the woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. Miles to go before I sleep. You know, we've we've got miles to go before we find ultimate rest, you know, with this subject and can put it to bed, so to speak. There will always be proverbial wizards standing in the backyard and every time that you know we we ask the question you know what is the meaning of this that wizard's going to give us an answer that's going to breed two more questions and they're going to keep growing like the gray hairs on my head every time i pluck one two more sprouts so we're going to be we're going to wrestle with this one for a long time very well said hey um yeah thanks so much that was a great spot to end it Oh yeah, fantastic! You're very welcome. It was my pleasure, and I, you know, I tell you, I look for the insightful, you know, discussions and interviews and things, and this has certainly been one of them. I don't tell everybody that. Sometimes I finish an interview and I roll my eyes and go back to sleep, you know. But but this this has been a lot of fun, and I appreciate you having me on here to good, uh, good. discuss we, this stuff we, with you. We didn't I got about half the questions like checked off on the list, and then at the same time looking through the list, like we somehow managed to answer them anyway uh, in some roundabout way through through the <laughs> ramblings of the conversation. Oh, cool. Good deal. I'm good at rambling. So, But, you know, if you ever want to catch up, we'll do it again sometime if you want to get some other questions in there. Very good. So, yeah. And, yeah, great. I, I will talk to you soon. This has been awesome. Yeah, most definitely. Cool. I appreciate it, Mike. Talk to you soon. All right. Adios. Bye. Bye.